Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast, and for the first time ever, a live stream event all about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. Nick Watson is uh, here, but trying to uh, get into the podcast. I'm sure he will uh, join us. And if you want to refresh your page uh, before we get into this, let me welcome our first mentee of uh, last year of 2019. Uh, you know him from uh, the first Paper Team mentorship, as well as being a writer on uh, Disney's The Ghost and Molly McGee. Please welcome Paul Chang. Hey, Alex, how's it going? It's going good. Uh, Nick, I think just joined us. I'm, uh, I'm going to add him uh, right here. Nick, can you oh, hear us? Are you, uh, are you with us? Yes. Can you guys hear me okay? I feel like my action is, <laughs> yeah. is pretty weird right now. <laughs> It's like you have a little bit of a spotty connections, but we can definitely hear you right now. So, it's uh, a, it's working. yes, exactly. Congrats on uh, 200 episodes. Congrats Thank on 200 you. episodes, guys. Thank what you. a day. It is pretty I exciting. Know. Nick, did you ever think uh, four and a half years ago that we would hit 200 episodes? Uh, I don't know. Not right. I thought we were going to run out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> Honestly, like, do we even know anything about <laughs> TV writing anymore? Is it as if we told them everything? They should be, what is you should all start your own podcast now. <laughs> yes. A podcast about Paper Team, maybe. Paul, uh, how have you been? We've talked, uh, I think it was a, a few months ago, we caught up with you a year, and a, a year later after uh, you got staffed, after the mentorship uh, was abruptly uh, canceled. <laughs> how have you been and how has it been uh, being on the Ghost and uh, Molly McGee? Uh, it's been great. Yeah. You know, I think all things considered, things have been things have been going well. You know, like, as you guys know, it's an animated show. So we've been able to continue on during the pandemic and, and shift over to a Zoom room and that sort of thing. So I think overall, it's it, we've been really lucky and, and, and uh, it's been a great experience. That's awesome to hear. Uh, actually, I have a little clip uh, from our very first episode with you, where we had asked you at the time. Uh, we uh, this was our very first episode with with Paul, where we had asked him uh, what kind of success he had had. He had written a couple of uh, specs and uh, I think maybe a feature or something like that. Uh, and so we asked him uh, what a success at the time he had, and uh, this is what he had to say. Placed in a couple of competitions, I was a finalist and semi-finalist in Slam Dance, Final Draft Big Break, and uh, the Tracking Board Launchpad competition. And most recently, I got accepted to the Cape Writing Fellowship. So that's actually going on right now. I had my first session this morning. Really excited for it. Uh, I was being paired with an, an industry mentor. And uh, it seems like they have a really awesome curriculum, both on the craft sites. So they're going to be helping me rewrite one of the pilots that I applied with as well as on the business side. So getting us up to speed on, you know, how to take meetings, how to get repped and things like that. That's awesome. Yeah, Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. Congrats. We did choose Paul first, just saying we got in there before he was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Uh, All right. Well, before we get to the, into this, uh, Nick, do you want to introduce our next uh, guest that's joining us? <laughs> our next guest is Alex Switzky, our longtime podcast editor and uh, the unspoken third member of Paper Team. Uh, welcome, Alex. <laughs> hey, guys. I am not at all comfortable being on this side of the microphone, but we'll see what to do the best we can. Well, uh, thanks for being with us for the first time in front of uh, uh, not just a microphone, but a camera as well. So this is also a first for us, yeah. I got to be honest, uh, which is why we have a little bit of a technical problems. But yeah, real, real, real glad I don't have to do 
video editing on top of audio editing for this <laughs> yes. one. We're not we're not podcasters. That's a, a whole different thing. <laughs> nah, not yet. Excellent. Let's uh, dig into. Uh, oh, we got a, a question. My good friend, question nothing, is in the chat. So uh, thank you, uh, question nothing, who says a uh, happy 200th episode. Paul, let's do a little quick uh, catch up. Uh, we uh, cut you short uh, to introduce uh, Alex a moment ago, but uh, we had uh, we did a survey for our 200th episode of Paper Team, where we asked uh, people what Paper Team moments or episodes they would like highlighted for our 200th episode event. And our longtime listener, Varda, uh, sent us an email saying, quote, it is so hard to pick since I consider all your episodes to be essential chapters of a book. Uh, you can't just rip one out. You have to listen to them all. However, I want to give a special shout out to the mentorship series, even though the first season got canceled, <laughs> LOL. It was wonderful to witness a Paul and Ben stories come to life. I really admire their courage for sharing their work with the listeners while they is still taking shape. These episodes helped me put myself in their shoes and examine my own scripts through the pointed questions that we asked. Uh, I love the series and hope you'll keep mentoring talented people so we can all learn from them. Uh, thank you, Varda. And uh, let me turn to Paul. How has uh, that experience been for you? Well, first of all, I'm really glad that, you know, it's been helpful and I was able to, uh, you know, play a small part in that. Um, in terms of what, what's been, how's it been for me, like the mentorship? Yes. And, uh, and also how has it sort of uh, prepared you moving forward, uh, sh especially sharing your work? It, it's such a, a vulnerable thing to do to publicly share the writing process. Uh, yeah, and in my mind, it's akin to being in a writer's room because in a writer's room, you are collectively building uh, a story, uh, a show. And so you were kind of doing that with your own pilot, which is very intimate in, in some capacity. So I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on, on that aspect. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the venture trip was great, even though it got abruptly canceled. Like, I mean, I, first of all, just, I feel like the main thing that I, I got out of it was just meeting uh, all you guys, because now, and, and I feel like that does speak to this industry, right? It's such a relationship-based industry. So, you know, if I have questions and stuff, like uh, even beyond w when the mentorship end, I know I've like reached out to Alex a couple of times I'm, I'm, and, and Nick, of course, um, with, with questions. And so that, that's been really great. Um, and it does speak to the nature of the industry in terms of like the notes part. Yeah, that was that was certainly really helpful, like um, getting notes and trying to incorporate that into the pilot um, was nice kind of practice for when I did get into the writer's room. So I do think it's a really great program. I've been listening to the episodes with uh, with uh, Ben, the new mentee, um, and that's been great to follow along as well. So I, I, I think it's awesome that you guys uh, are still doing it. Yeah, I feel like mentorship in general is just a really important part of this industry, being able to kind of pay it back to people um, once you've achieved some level of success or knowledge or whatever it happens to be. Um, you know, I think it's important for all of us, regardless of what level you're at, to reach out to other people and help like, kind of lift them up and help guide them and get to the point. Mean, it's the whole reason we started this podcast in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been uh, really fascinating also seeing your own journey. Uh, Paul, we'll we will uh, have been uh, later on in this uh, episode uh, uh, to talk about his own experience. Our podcast was really built to create resources that we wish we had when we first started. And just looking back all the way back to our very first episode, those were the reasons why we created the podcast. So uh, it was really uh, amazing to get to a place where we could bring uh, 
our listeners into that process and uh, help them shape their own stories uh, and and have a more quote unquote hands on experience. Because obviously, uh, when we're creating this podcast, it's a semi passive experience where we're creating content that other people are listening to at their own leisure. Whereas the mentorship is much more of an active role uh, that we take on. And uh, and really, uh, I want to thank you. And I know Nick is, is also really grateful for uh, Paul and and Ben's. Uh, uh, work and their opportunity to um, really uh, uh, be vulnerable and open with that process. Yeah, it's like if a writer's room got broadcast live to an audience before the show was even made. It's a, <laughs> an intimate process. But yeah, thank, thank you guys for taking part. Yeah, I uh, actually wanted to jump in there as well, just because I, you know, I've heard every episode of Paper Team since about like the mid. 40s. And I really have appreciated the mentorship episode just as a listener and as somebody who has had to really go through it with a fine tooth comb. Like I've been on both sides of the notes giving process. Like Nick and I have worked together and given each other notes for a long time. And it's all the same stuff. Like it is the exact same process that working professionals go through, just recorded and broadcast and having that dialogue. And I think that's really, really valuable. Like I think a lot of what Paper Team does is really valuable, but just getting that live interaction and hearing how those conversations are supposed to go in a healthy interaction is really important. So I'm glad to be a part of that. Glad that, we, glad that you guys have done it. Yeah, I believe it was actually originally your idea, Alex, right? You pitched it to I us at WonderCon right. one year and you were like, you, you should do a mentorship series. So uh, Paul <laughs> oh, and Ben, awesome. you can thank Switzky later. <laughs> thank you, man. I mean, I do, I do just want to say like, um, it's been just so awesome to be able to, to just go from, you know, being someone who listened to the podcast to be on just the fact that I'm able to be here on your 200th episode is huge and so cool. And I'm so grateful and excited about it. Like I used to listen to paper team. It used to be my like Rocky soundtrack. I would be like running at the gym, <laughs> sweating with like paper team going, this is my training montage, you know? And then to go from that to like being on the show and having this journey with you guys, it's been uh, just really wild and, and cool. So uh, always, always grateful to, uh, you know, to, to know you guys. That's awesome. Glad to have you. Exactly. Uh, let's dig into our first topic of the day, even though we can always reminisce about how amazing and useful Paper Team is. <laughs> let's look at uh, a more practical <laughs> topic, uh, which is uh, breaking in, and especially the in, the, in this uh, COVID era that we are living in, uh, our very first episode of Paper Team was about moving to LA, the necessity of moving to Los Angeles to work in television. And obviously this was four and a half years ago. Uh, but let's look at, uh, first of all, a clip from our very first episode of Paper Team. We will hate ourselves listening to this, but uh, this, I, I feel uh, some people might uh, sadistically enjoy. <laughs> this this, is, one, this so. is before I came onto the show. So any audio issues were not my problem. <laughs> when I still had an Australian accent too. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a listen. Number one, know why you actually want to be in television, why it needs to be the thing that you want to do with your life in order to make this huge decision to, to come to LA and, and try and work in that career. Second big takeaway is get the ball rolling even before you get to LA, whether that means writing a bunch of specs, entering competitions, or just getting some experience. Put yourself out there before you even land in LA. Wow, I feel so weird uh, listening to our voice. We were so young. Well. What's that? We were so young. We were so young and naive, yes. Yeah, you can hear the Australian accent in the word no, but like, no, like that guy. No. <laughs> you got me put every vowel into it, yeah. right? No, yeah, there, there you go, go. Paul. Yeah, these guys are uh, also Australians. So. 
It is interesting to uh, to hear our voices uh, before and after uh, four and a half years of uh, living in LA. Uh, and on that topic, let, let's talk about uh, uh, this uh, uh, for a moment. The fact that uh, in a pandemic world and uh, the evolution of TV is such that some shows now, uh, some writers' rooms are not just in LA. They're in New York. They're obviously in Canada. They're uh, uh, across the world now. So um, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts, uh, Nick, Alex, and uh, and Paul, about uh, the necessity. Of of uh, being in LA in 2021 uh, pretty soon uh, and uh, and to write for TV. It's kind of funny, I think, especially these days, there's been such a seismic shift in that um, due to COVID. I think that it's working from home is now more possible than ever. And I think that that applies to writers' rooms too. I know a lot of executives who have just moved back to wherever they were from or wherever they want to raise their families or whatever, and they're just taking their meetings from the East Coast or from you know the Midwest or whatever it happens to be. And I feel like writers similarly are taking all their Zoom meetings online. So um, yeah, it's interesting how much that actually has changed since we started the podcast and a lot of it due to a terrifying, horrible global pandemic, but uh, it's changed nonetheless. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Like, I think that, you know, whereas before the pandemic, you definitely had to be in LA to be in a writer's room. Right now, during the pandemic, you probably don't. Like, it's all over Zoom. I've I've had friends who are like traveling and moving around while they're, you know, they've been in, in the Zoom rooms. So uh, I think right now during the pandemic, it's not necessary to be in LA. But I think the big question is like, what happens after, right? right. Like, once we have a vaccine and things start to return to normal, will it just go back to being all in person like before? I think, I mean, who knows? I, I've t- I have no idea. Uh, but my guess would be it would be some kind of hybrid model because I think it's tough to put the genie back in the bottle now that everyone can just like, you know, just go to work in their pajamas from home. It's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> nice, you know? So I, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up with some kind of hybrid model where you go into the office a couple days a week and then do remote zooming for, for the rest of it. But uh, in which case, like if it is a hybrid model, then you probably would need to be in LA to take those like special meetings or at least have the ability to come in for those important face-to-face meetings, if that's the way it shakes out. I mean, I could also see us like staying on Zoom forever if people just like really <laughs> like it and there's the convenient factor and it saves people a lot of money because like, you know, companies are giving up office space and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so who knows? Yeah, I feel like the I, question to, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I actually kind of have a differing opinion. Like I think that if you are already working, I think you could continue to get jobs through Zoom. I think you could continue to... Well, like all of us, I think, have been in L.A. at least five years, if not longer. I would feel comfortable continuing my experience from there. But if I was just starting out and just went, oh, I could, for my example, stay in Melbourne, Australia and become a professional TV writer. I don't think that's true. I, I think that when things become relatively back to normal, being able to just be around other people and be in the same time zone, even if you're going to be online, getting that network started is still going to be tantamount to getting your career started. So for people that are in our position who have connections, who could get jobs, I think that we're very privileged that we could continue that. But getting started, I don't think that there's a good virtual networking solution yet. I don't think you can substitute that experience of just running into people in bars. Mm -hmm. And maybe that will come in the next year, but I don't think it's here now. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, uh, I mean, <clears throat> I think that's such a great point. Like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Well, I, I, I was just going to agree. I think that's such a good point that, like, I think being able to 
right from outside of LA presupposes that you have a way to get red, which means that you probably have a rep. Um, so it is possible to get a rep when you're not in LA, like through competitions and stuff like that, but it's harder. It's definitely harder. So I think you're right. Like while it's technically maybe possible to, um, get started while you're out of outside of LA than it was pre pandemic. I think you're right that like, there are still like a lot of barriers. Um, and being able to be outside of LA is much more viable if you are already like somewhat established in that at a minimum, having a way to like get red. Um, and, and be considered for these kind of jobs. Yeah, I, I yeah. definitely agree in terms of the networking and the getting started part. It is difficult uh, on some capacity to put yourself out there in a way that is meaningful, uh, meaning where you can get traction to get employment, essentially, because you can... Uh, 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 let me rephrase. I've always been a, a fervent uh, uh, fan of uh, the concept of putting yourself out there, putting your name out there, of creating a brand for yourself before even stepping foot in LA. In fact, mm. uh, I created TV Calling before moving to LA. Uh, and so I do believe you can do uh, a lot before getting to LA. You can write scripts. You can even start networking. You can uh, enter competitions. You can maybe get repped even. Uh, but uh, getting that first job, I agree to some extent that even in 2021, even in the pandemic era, you need to uh, have those relationships uh present to be able to get those jobs. And unfortunately, a lot of those relationships happen organically through uh, LA connections. Yeah. Um, now, I will say, practically speaking, in terms of working in a writer's room, my last show actually was with writers who were in literal different countries. We uh, we had people here uh, in LA, but we also had people in Canada. Uh, was and this pre-COVID we as well? No, so the the that that is what is interesting is okay. uh, right as uh, we, the room started about a month and a half before COVID really uh, took hold, um, and uh, at the time uh, those uh, Canadian writers were physically present in LA, and then the pandemic happened and uh, everybody went home, uh, but we still continued to work and uh, putting aside the technical the technical and uh, technological issues of uh, working in a virtual writers room, uh, in terms of the work being done, we did the work. We were able to manage having people on different coasts also working in the same uh, uh, in the same environment, essentially breaking out a show, etc., uh, etc. Et so I do feel it is feasible uh, to uh, do that. But uh, again, uh, like uh, you guys said, it, it is really hard to uh, justify in my mind, not at least visiting LA or building relationships locally before you're able to do that. This very quick is I'm just thinking, Nick, the only reason you and I are friends is somebody that we both knew from Melbourne. It was like, oh, Alex, you live in LA. My friend Nick is moving to LA. You guys should hang out. Like, yeah. To not have that like incidental little you two should meet because you just don't have that online anymore, that's a huge problem for people just getting started. And I don't know what the replacement solution is because online friendships are real, but real life friendships will get you much, much, much uh, faster to the point you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we actually have another guest coming in right now. So please, everybody, welcome Allison Taffel, who has written on BoJack Horseman and The Tonight Show. Uh, hey, Allison. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Uh, Nick, go ahead. Hello. Yeah. Uh, so we were just discussing the topic of basically getting started and breaking in and like moving to LA and doing all of that. I mean, you come from Colorado originally. How did you kind of get in here in the first place and do approach all of that? Um, what's the truncated version of that <laughs> story? Um, I, I 
before I moved to Los Angeles, I actually went and lived in Chicago for a couple of years uh, to study at Second City as well as study at um, IO, all the comedy schools out there. I really loved, I was really immersed in the improv cult. And um, <laughs> so joined it and uh, had a lot of fun. And it was a great place for me to kind of really learn a lot of like fundamentals of comedy. And I really thought I would be in Chicago a lot longer, actually. Um, I had aspirations to kind of continue there. But the ultimate decision to move to Los Angeles was I just wanted a job in, in the industry, even if it wasn't being a writer or, or exactly what I wanted. I just didn't want to be a nanny anymore. <laughs> like, I just didn't want to, like, have the, like, in the meantime job. I thought, well, my in the meantime job could be the one that's, like, getting coffee for people. So after two years, I... Um, moved out to Los Angeles in 2012. And so that's that's how I kind of made my decision and made my way here. Mm -hmm. And I've been here ever since. Yeah. And uh, you also recently had an experience of working between LA and New York. Um, what was that like? And, you know, in the post-COVID era too, how do you think writers are managing that kind of split and ability to work wherever? Oh boy, man, that was uh, weird. Uh, at a very weird start, and a, I mean, everyone's had a weird 2020, so, you know, I'm not unique in that sense. But yeah, I, I got a job on uh, Jimmy Fallon. And so in January, I, I did, I moved to New York. And um, <laughs> I started the job at the end of January. And, uh, and then was there for like a month and a half. And then March happened. And they, you know, and I didn't know anybody. I, I was subletting uh, from a comedian. I was just getting... Uh, my bearings and understanding New York. I'd never lived in New York, never. I'd only been there as a tourist, so really didn't know my way around. And then there was a day um, our boss came into the office and was like, hey, go home. And it was like, don't tell me twice. <laughs> like, get me out of here. <laughs> like, there's a pandemic. And I got on the first flight back to LA and then worked, yeah, I worked remotely from LA on the show for the remainder of my time on the show, mm -hmm. um, which I do think is a game changer. I, I miss... Being in a writer's room, I think there is something about being in a room, sharing a room with other writers that is very fun and very fulfilling. Um, you don't get that kind of same experience on a Zoom. Um, it, it's March. It's not as per, it feels not as personal on a Zoom to be creative with other people because there's always like, oh, let me mute and let me unmute. You know, there's that kind of whole culture. But I do think, I mean, I was able to work for a job in New York while living in Los Angeles, and I think. I, I think after this year, that's going to be a game changer with how television moves forward or how writers' rooms move, move forward. And how is that experience of working in a room on different coasts, especially different time zones? I mean, honestly, it sucked because, like, I our first meeting was at um, 10 a.m. New York time, which was 7 a.m. my time, which means I start and our first deadline of jokes for the day was 9.30 a.m. So that was 6.30 a.m. for me. So uh, I, yeah, I was up at 5.30 in the morning, <laughs> uh, totally awake and totally ready to take on the day's news, especially during a pandemic, uh, to write jokes. So that, that, I mean, that's the hardest part, right, is the time, is the time change. But then on the, on the flip side, because it was late night, I was done around 4 or 5 p.m., which was like 8 p.m. So I kind of didn't have to work as late as other people, but it was at the expense of like, well, yeah, I don't have to work as late, but it's because I have to go to bed. Like my bedtime became like 9 p.m. So I could like get up and be like awake to work at like 5.30 in the morning. Yeah, 
it's it sucked every time people ask me they're like how is that i'm like it sucks like i'm not gonna sugarcoat this is horrible it's like it's i'm so not a morning person so all of my first round of jokes on fallon i think were like really bitter like my first round was just like the world's horrible <laughs> like go oh, you know deal with alarm clocks yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, also i wanted to ask you like in addition to just the crazy hours do you feel like collaborating over Zoom and being creative over Zoom is just really tiring in a way that being with real people is not? Because I think you and I both have that improv background. Yeah. And I just can't vibe with people if I'm not in the same room with them in the same way. I really have to work harder and it really tires me out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, for instance, on this live stream, it's been um, really, I hate looking at myself and I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm getting distracted the reason I took such a big pause after the first question was I was like, God, I'm, I thought I was well lit and you guys look better. Like I, I don't, and I, there's nothing I can do about it now. So this is what I look like. I just, you know, I'm prettier than this. Just know that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, it's like, like I said, it's like muting, unmuting, like, you know, riffing. We, we had my head writer at uh, Fallon at the time was uh, Becky Drysdale and she really wanted us to not be on mute because she wanted people to jump in. You just can't. And so no matter what, even though she tried to push us to not be on mute, like we would still, it feels rude. It, it, it's a different, um, there's like different politeness through Zoom, right? And so that's hard. And so you don't feel as like, ca there's no, it's not casual. And then also you're always looking at yourself, which I don't care who you are, even if you're pretending like you're listening to other people, you're really just staring at yourself. And I think it, <laughs> it creates a mental exhaustion. Yeah, exactly. Of like, I think it, it's like if social, if we only live through social media, which is about mm -hmm. how we present ourselves. So I think it's a pre, it becomes a very presentational. I'm going to try really hard not to look at myself for the rest of the time. I'm talking to you guys. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like I it's really. Your window. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do I, how do I, can I do it? I don't, I've never been on this thing. Before. Um, but yeah, like, I, I think it makes you more presentational. It makes you more presenting. I mean, I don't know, in a room I'm presenting too. You always want to be, you have your work self, right? But I think Zoom creates a, like, a whole, takes it up to a whole different level that is kind of a side effect of social media, I think, too. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, so If you want to be funny, that means sometimes being not self-conscious, and that's already hard. But yeah. now you've got that extra layer of I'm self-conscious anyway. And now I'm self-conscious because I'm also on camera. Yes. And I also got, it was interesting how different, like, so my husband who is not in the comedy field, um, he's on Zooms all day. And the difference of like, he's wearing button up shirts and looking nice. And all I'm thinking is like, what is the funniest shirt I could wear? <laughs> like, what is the cleverest thing I could put in my background? Like, it's just <laughs> a different, there is, there does feel like something different with co comedy people. Like there were people when I was on Fallon that would be like laying in bed, you know, <laughs> like, Hey, what's up? Which it's like, that's a weird decision. <laughs> like you're like, you're inviting us into your bed during zoom meetings and your room is completely dark. And, all right. Uh, yeah, I think it creates a whole different, it's presentational. I think that's what I distilled it to be. It's super presentational, which right. I, I think might get in the way of being creative, to be honest. Yeah. 
I definitely agree. Uh, my last show was actually also a virtual writer's room with people in, uh, like I mentioned before, in, on different coasts. And so uh, just the visual aspect, like you said, where you're almost preparing to uh, work, it's sort of a different preparation where you're preparing your room and you're uh, putting on the right clothes, but also you're trying to figure out, okay, like what is the best way to portray myself in this very specific way um, that is different from, I would say, uh, a IRL uh, uh, set up. Um, so yeah. I definitely concur. And especially when you're pitching, I feel like because of the delay also, the audio delay between people, the internet issues and so forth, uh, you're pausing more often and you're trying to present, like you said, a pitch in a different way than organically uh, plus one or one plusing someone else or uh, building on something. It's sort of a different aspect. Of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I, I, to be a little more positive because it's like, you know, look, COVID has really affected everybody in the whole entire world negatively. And so it has in a sense in a writer's room, but for us, I, I try to be mindful of like, it's still pretty cool that you can have a full writer's room. And in fact, you might be able to get different types of people, you know, if because of the setup of like, you can have people from everywhere, which I think hopefully can help with diversity within a writer's room to make it more accessible to people to be in the writer's room. Cause I try to be mindful that it's just an inconvenience. Like being in, being in this zoom situation as a writer is an inconvenience, but it doesn't make our job impossible. It actually is. Our job is very possible where there's a lot of people right now who that's not that's not the case. So I try to be positive about it, but I also like, yeah, it sucks. Like it sucks being on Zoom. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, we have, uh, Alex mentioned some comments that we had. So let me highlight a couple of, of comments. Uh, one from, uh, listen to Leon who said, uh, I write, <laughs> I write for a 6 a.m. life here on, in DC and I'm far from a morning person. So I feel, I feel like Oh I'm, man, jeez. Oh, yeah. At least mine's later in the day or like you don't have to, oh, that'd be hard. <laughs> That'd be hard at all. That's yeah. rough. <laughs> Allison, with all the, like, with the fact that 2020 has been breaking news every second, like, how do you deal with that, like, up to the minute deadline? Like, especially if everybody's got their Twitter page open in next to their Zoom, like, at what point do you go, okay, we have to get the show out the door? Oh, I don't know how... I don't know how we, how Fallon did it every night. Like, to be honest, like we, you just do it. I guess there's just not enough time to like really, um, you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. And yes, there are things, um, in the Twitter verse that it feels like, Oh, they already made that joke three hours before our right. show is set to air. However, I will say Twitter is uh, niche. I know it doesn't feel niche to maybe <laughs> us, but like, you know, I, uh, Fallon is, is for, you know, all of the United States, middle America, like my parents aren't on Twitter. So like, you know, I think of my parents a lot with like, they watch late night. They obviously, when I was on Fallon, they watched it every night because they wanted to see, uh, and they wanted to guess which jokes were mine. And I would always have to be like, no, none of, none of them were mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's like, we, we, re we, re we record at five, usually we record at five to go on at 10. And sometimes breaking news happened in between then and we would have to cut stuff out or we would have to uh, occasionally, I think they put like sometimes like, hey, we didn't know about this news when this was <laughs> when we filmed this just a mere three hours ago. Um, it, it was just it was, I it, to me, it was like always just like a, a miracle that like every single episode actually happened. And 
it was very hard. <laughs> so I guess that's my answer is like, I don't know. It was hard. <laughs> Good summary of working in LA, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Nick just uh, dropped out. Oh, wait. Nick is back. I was like, we're having technical issues right here. Nick is here. Yeah. So uh, we are going to move on to our next topic now, which is about building your TV writing portfolio, pilots, specs, that kind of thing. Uh, we're actually going to ask uh, another guest on now, which is Ben Warner, who is our next mentee. Uh, Paul, you're welcome to stick around if you want to. If you want to head off to the audience, you're welcome to as well. But uh, just welcome, Ben, your, your successor. Hey, nobody, nobody leave. Congrats on the 200, everybody. Oh, uh, thank you. Hey. Uh, <laughs> how's it going, everybody? Nice. Was that someone's birthday recently, or did you get that just for us? Uh, what's the better answer for you? What makes you feel better? <laughs> just for us. It's very special. Yeah, just for you guys, then. Allison, Paul, nice to meet you guys. Hello, Alex, nice Alex, to meet you. Nick, nice to see you guys again. Yeah, we have hey, another nice guest, actually. We're going we're gonna to crowd this room right now. We're going to bring in <laughs> Julia. we got to bunch. <laughs> we're bringing julia yorks who uh, you might remember from pt 120 uh the episode about uh, finding stability as a nascent tv writer julia's written for all sorts of animated shows and uh live action now as well so welcome julia hi thanks guys can you hear me yes we can okay cool I, <laughs> i'm i'm learning about <laughs> these are these headphones i haven't worn them in a while uh but here we are <laughs> hey, welcome to the book. The, the Thank you. Yeah. Excited, you guys. It's so exciting. Congrats. What a big accomplishment. 200 episodes. That is a lot of episodes. That is, yes. Uh, <laughs> it is a lot. Uh, and this is our first live stream on top of it. So it's almost like a, two, a first thing and then the 200th version of something else. Uh, Going off without a hitch. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely flawless. <laughs> Uh, we'll fix it in post of the live stream. Um, no. Anyway, let's uh, jump, as Nick mentioned, into uh, our next topic, which was about building a TV running portfolio. And in fact, this is very uh, hot right now because I believe yesterday there was a, a whole Twitter conversation about the usefulness of spec scripts in television. A lot of people disagreed, people from both sides, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, Julia, since uh, you're uh, just joining us, uh, I would love to get your thoughts on um, sort of your approach in terms of building. Uh, a portfolio? Do you feel specs are worth writing versus pilots, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that Twitter debate happens every six months, right? It, like it just yes. keeps coming up. Um, personally, I never wrote a lot of specs. Um, and I think that is because uh, I went to USC undergrad and I was a screenwriting minor. So I did we kind of like, we had one assignment. It was like a Friday night lights and we uh, like Frankenstein together an episode. So I like specced a couple of scenes. And I think that was the most that I specced a show um, until I started writing on a show. And I, I think one of the reasons why I didn't spec more was because I personally started an animation. Um, I started as a script coordinator and about two years in was promoted to staff writer. So for me, specking was just writing on the show. Um, but I think that if I hadn't gotten staffed in animation early on, um, I definitely would have written a couple of spec episodes. I think more than anything, it's practice. Um, it's the practice that you get when you're in a writer's room adapting your voice to somebody else's. And if you're not in a writer's room, then you don't get that experience unless you set out to do it yourself. Um, and I do think that it's important for uh, the competitions and, and the fellowships and things like that 
Um, but I personally never did a lot of them. I think if, if anything else, it's for practice. Yeah, I definitely agree. Personally, I believe that specs in terms of a, a practical industry use is relatively limited. In fact, the main use of uh, specs in the last few years has been for uh, TV writing uh, fellowships. Uh, however, most of the writing fellowships now are moving away from specs, or at the very least asking also for an original writing sample on top of that spec script. So uh, uh, even the sort of the, the small window of the usefulness is being reduced. Now, I do know some comedy showrunners are reading specs. Uh, so uh, th there's uh, a couple of exceptions. But overall, I definitely echo what uh, Julia is saying. I definitely I agree with you that uh, uh, spec script in of itself is probably the closest equivalent to uh, experiencing what being a, a staff writer is like before being a staff writer. Because a pilot, uh, writing a pilot script is not going to get you to uh, mimicking or imitating what being a staff writer is like because you're uh, writing your own voice. You're not writing for the voice of someone else's vision or uh, someone else's show, etc. So writing a spec script uh, in terms of a learning tool is in my mind very underrated actually but uh it's probably the closest thing to uh, imitating that tv artist's uh, that staffing experience can i yeah. jump in on that very quickly alex sure go ahead so i've never finished a spec like i have finished probably about five pilots i've started a lot of specs and what i've gotten out of that experience is that it gave me an excuse to sit my ass down in a chair and study that show and i think that getting the stopwatch out and really getting the understanding of how a show works and how you can start framing your spec to it, to me was almost more important than finishing the spec because to everyone's point, nobody's really reading them anymore and the trend's going to switch back. It always does. But for me, like just to echo you, it is a learning tool was really invaluable and just having an excuse to break down existing shows that worked as shows that didn't work as scripts that were on TV really, really was helpful. So just even getting to the outline stage of, of a spec, I think is going to teach you a lot. I think it's so interesting because I think that, you know, a lot of showrunners or some showrunners on Twitter were saying, yeah, I would, I still read specs. And I think the issue is that there's just so much content that the likelihood that I've read, you know, the show that you're specking, like you have to know the show in order to know if the spec is is a quality spec or not. Um, like, so for me, if I'm a showrunner ever and lucky enough to be that, unless the person is sending me like a spec of Real Housewives of New York, like I might not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm more apt to, to read that spec <laughs> than I would to read maybe like a prestige drama that I haven't seen. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I've I've worked as an executive on and off as well um, as writing, and I've you know had the ability to staff writers on shows and read people's samples. And one of the things that I always find about specs or even you know episodes that they have written off shows, like existing you know like they were actually on the staff of that show and it's now a sample of theirs, is just that you don't really know what's them and what's you know the showrunner or what's uh, you know the if it's a spec of in a show then you know the world the characters a lot of the setups or the jokes have already been kind of created for you so you don't know how much is actually them and like a lot of specs can look pretty competent because they're just taking the tools that are already there if the show was a pilot you have to craft all of that from scratch and so if someone writes a good pilot you really know that they know their stuff but it's really hard to do that too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It really is, yeah. And uh, even doing, uh, I would say, like research uh, for your spec is probably the biggest thing that a lot of people should be doing, even before uh, putting pen to paper, so to speak. Uh, really understanding the intricacies of what makes the show that show, what makes the engine for a CW procedural uh, different than uh, something from a CBS show or something like that, or uh, the, what the characters' arcs are, etc. Uh, there's a lot of decisions that come into play into researching a, a script or especially especially a spec script that is what I speak to in terms of like preparing yourself for being a staff writer because in terms of being a staff writer you will be you will have to work in someone else's sandbox and not your own and uh, and writing a pilot uh, sort of a, a lulls you to sleep a little bit in terms of this is kind of what the 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 energy that I'm going to be doing uh, when I'm uh, working professional as a TV writer I'm going to be generating my own ideas as opposed to let me generate ideas that are my own but fit within a specific uh, uh, world and specific sandbox that isn't necessarily my own. Like, like to your point, Alex, I think if you've done your homework and you've done that research and you've really worked hard to understand a show and if people disagree with me, feel free to say so. I don't know how much more you're going to learn by then writing the script. If you've done the homework and you have the understanding of the show, it's going to be words on the page, which is always good, but I don't think it's going to teach you much more. Well, we actually have a question from uh, one of our artists member uh, to uh, Paul, uh, Jay Bruckner, who asks, uh, Paul, did you get hired off of an original pilot or a spec script? And as a follow-up, did specs play any part in your own journey? <laughs> if Paul, if Paul, are you still with us? Delay. <laughs> uh, I was hired off a pilot, um, but I, I like specs were incredibly important uh, to me. Um, oh, did I... Did I just oh, drop good, off? You're good. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're Can you hear me? You're good. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't know what got cut, but so I'll start again. Um, I was hired off at Pilot. Oh, there's a lag now. Now, now I'm just talking. Okay. Well, I'm just gonna power through. Um, uh, but yeah, specs were really important uh, for my journey in terms of like learning how to do it. Um, just like right, because I didn't go to film school, so I was coming from a place of like, like I never even, you know, I didn't know the format or even what like TV writing was. And so for me, like um, spec scripts, writing a few script spec scripts, um, I think I wrote like three or four before I ever tackled a pilot was invaluable because yeah, like writing a pilot is so hard. You have to do so much original invention in terms of like, oh, what's the story engine? What are these characters? What's their chemistry? Um, and it's so much easier to learn, at least for me, it, it was so much easier to um, learn the fundamentals of screenwriting, you know, just like well, what's an act, you know, like how do you, how do you like, what's a scene transition, what are like, you know, what, formatting things and stuff like that. It was much easier to learn that within the context of established shows because like these are shows that I knew and loved. Um, and so I could just kind of like take it and run with it and focus on some of those really um, basic things before having to think about like all those really difficult pilot type of questions like, oh, what's the theme of this show? All that difficult stuff is already taken care, was, like, taken care of already. Um, so I think that specs are a really, really great way for people who maybe didn't go to film school, or even if you did go to film school, whatever, uh, just really great way to um, learn, even if they're not as useful as, um, uh, as a sample. Um, because like, I know that my first pilot was stronger than it would have been uh, if I was like trying to write, it, it was stronger than it would have been uh, if I just tried, tried to write a pilot up front, because I would have been having to learn all these like really basic concepts while also doing like the really difficult work of figuring out how to like, you know, create a, create a show in the world. 
Yeah, can I, can I jump in yes, with just, because uh, like I um, hate specs, uh, but I understand their importance in terms of exactly what Paul was saying, which is that they teach you how to write for television. Like it's like they, they're, I think original pilots is, is, is for you to learn your voice and spec scripts are for you to learn how to write for television. And it's two very important things that I think you need to learn. Um, me personally, I've never gotten like paid work from someone reading a spec. I haven't written a spec script in like, I'm not kidding, like over eight years. So if you want to write a spec, I think go for it. There's all these beneficial things. I would suggest though, also another, like my kind of the lazy man's trick for me, instead of writing a spec uh, with learning kind of fundamentals of a television show is to watch your favorite shows that you pick a show that you love that you have seen every episode multiple times that you can like quote it, like you know it so, so well and get a notebook and sit and actually like write, like you're taking notes, like study that show. And I say one that you really know because you already know what's gonna happen. Like you already know the outcome of this particular episode. So when I was first starting out, I love Parks and Rec. So I watched Parks and Rec and I literally got a, got a journal and I wrote first scene, this is what happens. Second scene, this is what happens. Third scene, I just literally wrote exactly what had happened and who's, you know, I took notes. And what it what that did is it taught me like, oh, that's a cold open. Oh, that's what a cold open is. Oh, and then we go into credits. Oh my God. And then like act one, then it goes to a commercial break. And then that's the end of the act. Like I figured out the structure by taking the copious notes of the show I loved. And then I did it with other shows. And if there's a show, even I still do it to this day. If there's a new show that I'm like, how do they do that? I love this show. How do they do this? I actually do take notes and figure out what the mechanics were behind it. And so I also think that's a nice exercise if you are like me and don't want to write a spec script. Um, <laughs> so I would just throw that out there. Yeah, I've done a very I've done a very similar thing where if I'm watching a pilot with a friend or my girlfriend and we're in like a studying mood, we'll just pause at the end of every scene and just go, okay, what just happened? Like it's a really cool way of getting your stuff in. So I'll that that's all I've got to say. Nick's gotta jump in and enter our next guest, but I totally agree with you, Allison. Yeah, those are all great points. I'm going to throw another guest into the mix here. Uh, everybody, please welcome Jordan Vandina, a writer for uh, Hulu's Animaniacs and uh, The Binge as well. So welcome, Jordan. You're, we can't oh, hear, your can't hear you. Uh, technical issues. No, we, we can see you, but not hear you. So you can mime the answers also. Wait, yeah. I see a little bar. Can you hear <laughs> there this? He is. Oh, there he is. There we go. Welcome. Yeah, oh, I was saying cooking. happy 200 to you guys. You didn't hear any of it. I gave you a little <laughs> intro. It's all right. We'll start from here. Thank you very much. Good to see you again. Yeah. Yeah, you too. So Jordan, you had an interesting sort of um, experience with the, the writing samples that you wrote and how you got noticed. Um, sure. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, um, sure. I started on Twitter where I, I said I was the assistant to Doug Allen who created Entourage and I, uh, would release fake Entourage pages <laughs> and then, um, uh, Seth Rogen found it and then he was retweeting it. So that helped me get an agent. Uh, and then I started a website called weekendscripts.com where I would basically do hybrid spec scripts. I would write like what's in the news and then a famous franchise and then write it over the weekend, put it out on a Monday. So like, one of them was, which I've used to get almost all my jobs, was Fast 9, The Fast and the Fuhrer. And uh, it's about the Fast team going back to race Hitler. Classic. Um, and Paul Shear found it. And then he did a live read where Nick Kroll played Hitler. And uh, Mandukas played Vin Diesel. Lance Reddick played Tyrese. It was insane. Uh, and then from there, I, I got staffed on shows and uh, 
The rest is history. I'm the richest man in Hollywood now. <laughs> uh, did you get stuff of all like moving samples or did you have pilots or specs or anything like that too? Uh, I really only use Fast 9. So that was a weird, like, I think it was 80 pages. Um, so, yeah, I used that to get staffed on the show What Would Diplo Do, then the show Supermansion, and then Animating. Excellent. Yeah. Well, someone in our audience, uh, speaking of uh, sort of samples and uh, and original samples, especially, uh, one person wants to ask a question for Paul, and that is, uh, are you still developing or shopping around the pilot that you that we helped uh, you with, which was a mid-death crisis? And just as a reminder, the, the mentorship kind of uh, abruptly ended when he got stuff. So I think we only got to the outline stage or somewhere along the way, but anyway. Uh, finished stuff because I did not. I, I basically when I got staffed, um, I started like just focusing, just making sure I could do a good job on uh, on uh, you know uh, on the thing that I was getting paid to do. And so that took a backseat. And like since then, I just did, I just moved on to other things. Like I wrote a feature, um, and so I have not developed that. So uh, don't be like me. That's bad. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, hopefully you can work on, the, on that sample at some point in the future and uh, represent Paper Team in the in the business. Has anybody got any other thoughts about our topic in terms of uh, building your portfolio, especially sort of a sample that in 2021 can uh, put your name out there in a way that in the, in the past may not have? I was going to say something that's a little bit more general than 2020 specific, Please. but I think um, when I was first starting out, I really just wrote based on whatever idea I was clicking with at the moment. And that meant that I ended up with scripts ranging from like literally like kids animation to an indie family drama to like a raunchy buddy comedy. Um, and I think that what I've learned is that it's really important. I think when you're starting out and you have limited time to write, it's important to be targeted and, and really think about what you want that niche to be and what you're trying to break into. Um, I wish I did that earlier on, even though I was left with a wide array of samples, it took me a little bit to, to nail in what it was that I, that I was actually aiming towards. And, and so if you can skip that step, I think it's a little bit more helpful in your career journey. A quick question for everybody here. What do you think, if you had to choose, I don't know, one thing or something that stands out to you, what makes a great pilot when you've sat down and read either a produced pilot or a friend's script that you really loved? What stood out to you about it? I'll, I'll go first. If it feels like a TV show at the end, like I think, and, and Nick, you and I have talked about this off air. I think the main thing that I run into with friend's pilots that don't work is I don't get to the end of it and go, okay, then what? Like, it feels like a short movie. It doesn't feel like I can see where this is going to go in season two. So if I can picture a season two at the end of it, I think that's a good pilot. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree that this is actually a topic that we covered uh, recently on the podcast. But the fact that uh, if you spend the entire episode of the podcast, or not the podcast, <laughs> the episode <laughs> of uh, the pilot, uh, talking about something, and then in the last 10 minutes, you reveal what the show actually really is about, uh, then that doesn't really show and demonstrate what the show actually is about and why we should invest our time in uh, reading or purchasing the show or, or purchasing you, know, you as a creative. Uh, because you need to establish very early on what the show is going to be about. At least the personal, I feel like that's what 
what really distinguishes one pilot from the next is if very early on, maybe even in the teaser, you can really figure out, okay, this is the Breaking Bad. This is the show that uh, really sticks out from all the other ones. They are able to generate something very early on that no other show can, as opposed to waiting until page 60 of that script to deliver. Oh, boy, you're going to love my my first draft then, huh? <laughs> Tell me more, Ben. Oh no, we'll get we'll have time for that. We'll have time for that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, my only thought is uh, the best advice I ever got uh, in terms of is understanding that people are reading a, like reading a stack of scripts, and so I was told to hook someone within the first three pages, and a lot of my writing is really dark and bonkers and weird. So that was very fun for me is like within the first three pages uh, or the first five, whatever. But for me, it was always the first three is like by the end of page three, I want you to be like, what? What? And then go to the next page because they're going to they're going to if you're if they don't if you don't grab them right away. What's the point of them continuing to read your story to find out in the last 30 seconds of your pilot in the last page of your pilot, the interesting thing has happened. So I think that was my best advice and something that I love to do, which is like, all right, how can I kick this story off with like a real bang within the first three pages? Agreed. Also, also every piggyback on that. I I totally agree. That's super important to you. Oh, sorry. No, it's all good. There's a lag. You go. (laughs) Oh, no, there's a lag. We're caught in the vortex. <laughs> um, okay, I'll, I'm going to go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with Allison that um, you need to, uh, that, like, yeah, it's, it's important to uh, start off, like, by hooking people um, and uh, kicking things off with a bang. And I just even broaden that, that when I, for me, I know I've, like, read a good script when I'm surprised that it's the end. Um, I, you know, I look up and I can't believe it's, it's finished. And I think part of that is is that like every sentence is like pulling me forward and doing something interesting. So it might be funny, it might be revealing new information, it might be unexpected in some way. But like every single element, every piece of dialogue, every scene, line description feels like it's like adding and, and propelling me forward. Um, so yeah, I think that you know, re- like I think it's really Im- impossible to uh, overstate the importance of. Um, readability and, and making sure your script is just a really good read. Mm-hmm. I was going to say too, I love a good act break, like strong act out. Um, most of my original stuff is in, uh, you know, sci-fi grounded sci-fi drama type stuff. And so like a great just hook or a great twist at the end, something that makes you gasp and makes you want to, you know, there's not many commercial breaks in the world anymore, but uh, with streaming, but if, if you want to tune back in after that commercial break, then that script has got me, um, even if some of the stuff in the middle, <laughs> if I'm racing to get to the next act <laughs> break. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, those are all really great pieces of advice, I think, for our listeners. Uh, we are going to be taking a short break now as we transition over to our next topic. I want to thank each and every one of our guests who has joined us. Uh, you guys have been amazing. Thank you for being on the podcast in the first place. And thank you for joining us again on the 200th episode. And uh, we'll see everyone in a couple minutes. We're back. 
officially for the second hour of our Paper Team 200th episode special. And we are uh, now joined by two incredible guests. Uh, first up, uh, we have uh, my good friend Frankie, uh, who uh, is a writer. Oh, sorry, I'm just pulling up other information at the same time. <laughs> Multiple things are happening. Uh, but uh, first up is uh, Frankie. She's uh, an amazing TV writer. Uh, she's uh, written for uh, the Alward Generation Q and uh, Sweet Magnolia. I don't know if uh, if uh, Frankie can hear us, but uh, hi, Frankie, or not. <laughs> There's a little bit of a delay. But uh, <laughs> while uh, Frankie uh, gets acquainted, uh, uh, let me introduce uh, our next guest, uh, Tamara Becker Wilkinson from um, one of my favorite shows on the air, Doom Patrol. Hi, it's so hi. good to see you again. Uh, how have you been since uh, we last talked? Uh, I think it was over a year ago. Yeah, great. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, congratulations on your 200th episode. That's amazing. Thank you. A lot of uh, hard work. I don't know if Frankie can hear us. Uh, we'll see in uh, just a moment. But uh, the next topic that we wanted to talk about on uh, this uh, very uh, special episode was all about character and story, and especially balancing character and story. Let me throw it to Tamara first, especially because Doom Patrol is such a mythology-heavy show in some capacity. It's based on a very well-known IP. It deals with a lot of, like I said, mythology, world-building, etc. And uh, it's very uh, structurally um, unique in many ways. Every episode feels very different in its own genre. So uh, how are you folks able to manage balancing character and story and structure all those different elements in uh, such a compelling way on Doom Patrol. Um, well, thank you for that. Um, it's such, it's so much fun to work on that show. It's uh, really the, my favorite thing I've ever gotten the chance to work on. And I think that the rule of thumb that we go by is character and emotion first. And if the character and the emotion feel grounded and real, you can get away with almost anything. And I think that the proof in that pudding is that a, a frequent comment that we'll get about the show is, I have no idea what's happening in this show, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Uh, sorry, Nick, did you want to jump in? Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, Julia, you've written on obviously a couple of things as well. How have you found? I have. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you have you found balancing that on what you've been working on lately? On balancing character and story. I mean, I think it's just really important to make sure that everybody is motivated. Um, you know, I think figuring out who your character is and their wants and making sure that those wants and goals are really clear throughout the story and just constantly using the story as obstacles to further develop your character. Um, that's, I think a lot of, I just wrote a movie for Buzzfeed, uh, that is shooting right now. It's called one up. And I think that's a lot of what it is. It's like making sure that you have a character who has a want, who has a driving force and then just really, um, building the story around trying to thwart her so that she has to grow as, as a person. Uh, I think that's, that's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. And what are some tips that uh, you guys might have on crafting an, an engaging character arc, whether that's on like an episodic level for TV or on like a series or season long level? Um, good question. <laughs> huh. I think when it's, when I mean, this sounds like basic stuff, but if it's relatable, I think it makes it engaging if in whatever, and it can be tricky when you're dealing in strange worlds, like, you know, 
like some of the weird places we go to in Doom Patrol, like a land where a guy, you know, Dr. Time has created a disco because he believes that the day that Xanadu um, was released in the movie theaters, that that's the greatest day ever and that everyone should be living in that time. <laughs> and so, you know, it sounds like big and broad and maybe it is a little bit, but within that story, we also found ways to tell stories about where our own characters are stuck in their own cycles in their life. And that in watching that, you know, like I'm not a huge fan of the movies and I do nothing against it, you know, but, um, but I definitely could relate to feeling stuck on certain moments in my life. And I, I think that one of the people watching it, they could, could find that in themselves. And I think that at the end of the day, that, that, that makes for compelling character story. Yeah. I, I also think that, for me, in in a lot of the um, like the pitches that I'm developing or projects that I've sold, I, I really like to think about where my character starts, and I always kind of conceptualize what is the last scene of this of this show for me. Where do where does my character end up? And then, kind of when I can see where that arc is in total, it makes it really fun to pick out different places along the way of where that character is going to be challenged or um, you know, how, how did they get there? And it kind of, for me, makes like a little, um, visual of, of beats that I need to have along either the pilot or throughout the series to pinpoint in my pitch, um, to, to show character growth. Mm -hmm. And on that point, how do you go about giving each character their own unique voice, uh, be it uh, in their actions or in the dialogue so that really they feel and sound and act differently from one another? Maybe they contrast each other uh, and maybe you can theoretically cover up their names on their, you know, on the script and then uh, they all sound so distinctive. How do you approach giving each character that unique voice? I do the thing that you shouldn't do because I'm largely, you know, I've worked on shows before. Um, predominantly in animation, but in terms of my own stuff, I do the thing you shouldn't do, which is where I cast them as actors <laughs> that I know. And it really, I, you know, you might not end up with that actor, but it really helps to get an authentic voice. Um, so I don't know. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I do it. <laughs> I don't know, Julia, I do the same. Okay. <laughs> and especially like you can, it's strange how when you're figuring out a pilot or whatever, sometimes you can really know what the story is and who the character is, but when you sit down to write, uh, you can be unsure what that person is supposed to sound like. And almost every single time it helps me to have an actor analog to start with. And then as I start working with that analog, it, it tends to just kind of take on a, a life of its own. And when you, when it comes to kind of writing a scene or an episode, how do you kind of balance um, basically getting the characters stuff out, like servicing character as opposed to servicing story? I think you have to take a few passes on a scene, right? Because um, in the first pass, you know, I always find sometimes when I'm writing in the first pass of it, I'm either going to get very swept up in making sure that all the plot things are right. If it's an important plot scene that's pushing the story forward. But then when I go back and read it, I'll realize that I've neglected the emotional stuff or I'm leaving emotional moments on the table. So it's it's really just all about when you're done with the script, really going through every scene with almost, I know some writers that make checklists for themselves. And like Julia was saying before, like even having just five things that say like, what does this character want? You know, who is trying to stop them, stuff like that. And making sure that those things are present in every scene. 
it's almost like algebra. Mm. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that is, um, I remember I had sold a pilot to Freeform and um, I was on, I think it was like the fourth draft that I had been, you know, that I was set to write and I was just stuck and I couldn't figure it out. And I had this little mini meltdown and I was saying to my husband, like, I can't do it. I don't know. I don't know what they want from me. I can't, I can't do it. They're going to fire me. Like I can't figure it out. Um, and he had me sit down, calmed me down and he sat with me and he watched every pilot that had ever that like freeform had on their uh, app. We watched the pilot of every show that they had. Um, and then uh, we sat down scene by scene and broke it down. And it was basically like, Oh, cool. You don't need this. This isn't helping you with story. Um, or like, this isn't helping you with character development or this scene is great for this. You need to keep it and amplify it. And um, now I do that with every script with or without an emotional breakdown uh, <laughs> component. <laughs> you have a super cool husband, by the way. He's, he's really wonderful. <laughs> I, uh, I, I say to my wife, I'm like, uh, I can't make anything happen. I guess I'm done. It's over. You know, we're going to have to pull the kid out of private school and sell everything. <laughs> it was one of those rare spiral moments where I think I keep it together pretty well in terms of work. And it was one of those where it was just like fetal position on the floor. <laughs> and I think it was like, if he didn't help me, like he was, he lost me. So, <laughs> so does, I does think he, yeah. uh, pilots include any ABC family shows like Kyle XY or Greek. <laughs> no, we specifically were targeting freeform shows, uh, that were in the vein of, uh, what I had been writing. So, um, but yeah, we watched a lot of freeform shows that day. <laughs> uh, I actually had a question. Um, so both of you have worked in the genre space and that usually means working with circumstances that you do not have any direct connection with for obvious reasons. When you have to get to that like emotional resonance, when you have to make it human, even if you can't directly relate, how do you do that work? Like how do you go within yourself to make that connection? feel like we're all human and even especially in the genre space that there's so much in it that um, that's relatable and emotional that's just underneath the rivets and the superpowers and all that kind of stuff and um, you may not relate to everything that's happening in every scene but as a whole you can always find something you know a piece of you in the in the piece itself and so you you pour as much of yourself into that piece as you can. And then thankfully when you're on a show and you're with the writing staff, you get notes from people and, you know, everybody on that staff brings their own experiences to the party and so that they can help you make those scenes feel more authentic. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, from sci-fi stuff, I, I try to do a lot of, a lot of my stuff is very grounded. So it's like our world, but there's one thing off. And so um, but even, you know, when it's spaceships and, and superpowers, like keeping your characters as characters, even if they're not human, keeping them as human and grounding them in, in real emotions, um, even on Puss in Boots, you know, we were grounding Puss in real emotions and he had real emotional arcs. So um, just remembering to keep the, the humanity in your characters, even when they're not necessarily human. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about sci-fi, even going back to Twilight Zone, original Star Trek and everything, is that you can use that genre as a device or a metaphor to explore something human and universal rather than it, you know, it's not that it's something that you can't relate to, it's it's something that you're able to then transform into this kind of literary device that allows you to then explore the human condition. Right, I feel like every great story is essentially, uh, you should be experiencing a level of catharsis. That's the idea of a compelling story. And... uh, creating compelling characters in my mind also means having empathy for who you're writing about or for or accept all those things uh and so really digging into the emotions that uh you have lived and you can tap into and that people around you know about uh is uh in my mind what it's all about in fact uh this the common adage that you should write what you know and in my mind that is essentially what you should be writing about it it's not literally write you know, being a lawyer, it means, right, the heartbreaks that you've had or the the grieving process that you lived through or all those, uh, or the joy that uh, you sometimes feel that despite the pandemic, uh, you know, <laughs> all those things that are going through your life, uh, you should that tap into. Um, and on that note, we actually have a question from Oberon who asks uh, a question from that. What sort of strategies do you all employ when you start to spiral emotionally? Drink. <laughs> Yeah, why? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, I'd say I'm a non-drinker, and uh, I think that um, self-care when, I mean, for anybody, but when you're a writer is so important and giving yourself permission to just step away from um, from the computer and give yourself a day to play video games or not think about your script or whatever, or just to eat chocolate or drink wine or whatever you need to do to kind of psych yourself back up or just to sort of like recharge yourself because it, you know, like writing can be really draining. I mean, it's, it sounds so dramatic, but it can be pretty draining just creatively. And that if you don't do things that recharge you, or you're trying to force work out of yourself, you're not going to get your best work. So I think it really is like, for me, chocolate, video games, and uh, and then try again the next day. I go for a lot of walks. Um, I think that's really helpful. I'm in New York, so there's always a new street to explore. Um, but I totally agree. I think that one of the things that I do is if I'm, you know, I do a lot of freelance stuff. So I'm always working on something. And those days when I don't have anything to do, um, I really force myself to chill and just like, take a day to myself. I'll watch TV in the middle of the day. And, and because I know that everything's going to collide, you know, a couple days later and I won't get that time again. And I often find that whatever I'm stuck on, or if I'm, you know, trying to work out a conceptualize a, a potential project that day always shows me the answer because I'm not even trying, I'm not focused on it. And it just gives my mind time to wander um, and even though I feel like insanely guilty the entire time I'm sitting on my couch at 3 p.m., I, um, it always benefits me in the long run. So I just got to get rid of the guilt factor and then I'll be golden. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like if you're really spiraling, I think it's good to just even recognize that you're spir- spiraling emotionally and make a conscious effort to do something to, to stop it. Um, whether it be take a walk or call a friend or if there's no one to call do anything that you enjoy doing that'll be diverting but even 
the smallest things like making yourself take a shower or making yourself just take a walk up the block and back can be incredibly um, recharging. Yeah. Unfortunately, as writers, I think we've chosen a profession where we have homework every day for the rest of Mm -hmm. our lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's important, you know, like you guys have said, to stop and take that break and realize that you don't always have to be productive, especially lately in the pandemic. It's been really hard for a lot of people to be creative and to feel comfortable doing that. Um, And, you know, you're like, well, I'm I'm sitting at home and I've got all this time. But, you know, you have to respect your kind of mental health and your mental energy and your ability to do that. So don't feel like, you know, every day that you haven't written something is a failure. Um, You know, try to put everything in perspective and take it one day at a time yeah. um if, oh, you, yeah. if you have if you have the ability to and this is like not everybody does but if you have the ability and the privilege go to therapy get a good <laughs> therapist like you don't have to be struggling they will give you the tools that you need for that when you start hitting those spirals you will know a bit more about what works for you like what might work for us is not going to work for you so but getting a therapist or getting somebody that you can talk to that will help you unpack that within yourself it's really, really helpful. And I realize it's expensive, but if you have the ability just for a couple of weeks, it really will make a difference. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, and Julia has to now leave us. So thank you so much for-, for Bye everybody, it's great. Good to see you, best of luck. Bye. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with uh, Alex there. And in fact, it, it doesn't have to be expensive. There are plenty of options that are uh, free or cheap or open uh, to a lot of people. So definitely look into that. Uh, Nick, do you want to introduce our next guest, uh, Mike? Yeah, so we are now going to be joined by Mike Scully, uh, who is the co-showrunner of Duncanville, is a show around The Simpsons and worked on a number of other classic animated shows. Welcome, Mike. Hey, how you doing, guys? Okay. Good to have you back. We're doing great. We're talking about uh, strategies that we employ <laughs> viral emotionally. So not, the, not the happiest of topics. Yes. <laughs> Came in at a low moment in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you ever have any days where you feel like nothing's going right? And how do you kind of deal with that as a writer? Oh, shit, man. Uh, you mean uh, days when yeah things just aren't going right in the writer's room when you're writing? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we actually uh, we had one about 24 hours ago. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we uh, we're uh, we're at the point right now, and uh, we're in like season two of Duncanville, and we're, we're breaking the very last story of the season. And you know, we've been doing it all on Zoom, and we're all just pretty like fried and uh, sick of, sick of looking at each other in these tiny little boxes. Uh, so yeah, there was a story that. We were like, we got very excited about, then started losing enthusiasm for. <laughs> then, then would something, somebody would say something, we'd get excited again. And then, like a half hour go by, and then we were just thinking on bailing it all together. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I, I would say our trick for getting through it was realizing we had no other <laughs> stories. Uh, <laughs> even close to being ready to go and we have to read the script a week from Wednesday. So we, uh, we stuck with it and just kept uh, chipping away at it. And now we have something we kind of like. So nice. Uh, going back to some craft questions, we were just kind of discussing character and everything before. And one thing I feel is especially important in sitcoms and comedy is character dynamics and how you build that cast of characters to kind of bounce off of each other. And um, how do you go about doing that for your shows? Um, yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're first putting a show together, you're you're kind of hoping you can see the potential uh, dynamics between them and where you know some fun conflicts could be. 
uh, so you don't have a bunch of characters all agreeing with each other, <laughs> which is kind of makes for a kind of boring television. Uh, you know, <laughs> so uh, you know we did you know look for that in the show. Uh, the trickiest part, actually, of Duncanville was the character of Duncan uh, was because fifteen-year-old boys tend to not be very verbal and not, not necessarily have a lot of strong opinions beyond, you know, whatever, <laughs> I don't care. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, shit like that. And then we learned very quickly in the first season, we tried to do a story where Duncan did not care about anything and it made for really boring uh, scenes and like nothing for the other character to play off of beyond saying like what do you mean you don't care <laughs> uh, so we came up with something like we decided if he's not going to care about something he has to be like uh he has to have like really strong opinions about why he doesn't care and we started to just call it passionate indifference <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that was kind of a trick we came up with that you know enabled us to come up with scenes for that and then other shows you know um you know, Simpsons, you get, you know, Homer and Lisa is just built in, mm -hmm. you know, conflict, uh, you know, in, in that they believe almost everything the opposite. Uh, and, you know, Bart and Lisa being siblings, you know, there's natural conflict that comes with that. So, you know, you try to find stuff. But if you find yourself writing, there's a show that I worked on uh, uh, first. It was a uh, let's see. <laughs> I don't know if I should say it or not. Uh, <laughs> the person who created the show, it was based on their real lives, and he didn't want the two lead characters to be in conflict with each other because when he went home at night, uh, <laughs> he thought that was gonna, it could be an issue. So we were always trying to write scenes where these two characters who were the leads were just kind of agreeing on a lot of stuff. Uh, and finally, one day in the room, I, I, I said, I think the problem we're having is that we're doing the odd couple, except they're both neat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I would watch know. the shit out of that show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, I have a question for everybody just off of what you said, Mike. How do you know when to give up? Like, how do you know, like, okay, we're too far down the rabbit hole. The story is not working and we need to go back to square one. Oh, oh I thought you just meant my career in general. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, because, yeah, that, that was probably like 10, 12 years ago. So, um, um, I have kind of a very general rule that if you can't nail, if you don't nail the story by the third full day you've spent on it, it's time to bail. Uh, and you put it aside. It doesn't mean you'll never figure it out, but you just put it aside and move on to something else. And, uh, you know, and sometimes it's one of those things where once you give up and you put it away and say, we'll figure it out some other day, hopefully, like, you know, a lot of times within, you know, <laughs> three days, you've suddenly got the answer to that. Other times it's a lot. There's a Simpsons episode that I wrote, you know, many years ago, I always had the first act of it and then never knew where to go with the story. Mm -hmm. And I hung on to it for like a couple of years. Um, and then one day, I, uh, listening to Howard Stern on the radio, there was a story being like told by somebody. And then suddenly 
Like I was just sitting at a red light. I was like, bam, like that's the solution to that story that I couldn't figure out. And then we wound up doing the episode. So if you have, if there's a germ there that you really like, just never forget about it. Don't just give up and throw it away, but put it aside, move on to something. And you, know, you may find the solution, you know, a couple of years later on the Howard Stern show. <laughs> uh, i'm just gonna invite another guest on now we're joined by jay haltham who has written for marvel's cloak and dagger jessica jones and now supergirl hello everybody how's it going it's good to see everyone t so good to see you it's been like literally three years yeah crazy right <laughs> right yeah so, so crazy, crazy. Oh, can you hear it again uh, mike are you good Oh, okay. There it is. There oh, we there we go. Yeah. Do you, you guys know each other through uh, Superhero World, or what is that? Yeah, right. We were on the failed uh, Daredevil season four together. That's right. Two glorious months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was. It was a good time. It was a great good yeah. time, and then it was over so quickly and so sadly. I, I've never saw people clean out their offices so fast. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> well, we didn't have a lot of stuff in there. You had a lot of stuff in there, but all the rest I, of us, like, we just got in there. Yeah, I travel heavy. <laughs> you know what? You've got cool stuff. You should show it off. I got a lot of crap, and they always say travel light because if you get shit canned, you know, you yep. want to be able to do yes. it in one trip, but I will have the most humiliating, like, nine trips of, I yep. made it. I'm never going to see you guys again. <laughs> No, but nine times. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely like in the middle. Like I like decorating my office. Some, you know, I have friends. Uh, I don't know if you know, Nicole Levy, she's a big decorator, mm -hmm. but uh, Pete Calloway, who I was also on Daryl with is very much the guy who's like, he just brings in his laptop. He's like, if I get fired. I just want to be able to walk <laughs> away and never come back here again. Yeah. I just, just very quickly okay. on that topic years ago, I, I comedy writing team named Tom Gamble and Max Prost who wrote like for SNL and Letterman and Seinfeld and, and they're on the Simpsons now. They told me <laughs> many years ago, they were working on, I think it was Gary Shandling's first show. Uh, <gasps> it's Gary Shandling's oh, show. love that show. Loved it. There was a writer on staff. It was his first job. <laughs> and he brought in like every like comedy cliche prop to hang in his office. Like a <laughs> Moose head and, <laughs> and, and, fish. And, and all this shit in his office. And then he got fired one day. And he had to keep making multiple trips. <laughs> but each time he went by, he had to walk past the writer's room and he had some big comedy profit. <laughs> Oh my god, that's the funniest image. Oh my god. Yeah, my rule is like one box load and they're out the door. I'm oh sorry. Jump in there. I'm sorry. No, you're good. No, you're good. Uh, I feel like we all experienced it in in March of this year when we all had to pack our bags really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's still stuff in my office. Like I don't I actually pack up. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Jay, how have you been? It's been a, a little bit uh, since we yep. last talked. Uh, how has uh, Supergirl been? How has uh, the pandemic been for you and, and everything? Hopefully. Oh, by the way, just the not to cut you off, but uh, I noticed the Green Knight a board game in that's your right. Background that I also have in front of me right there. So. Nice. Well, good eye, good eye. That was a sweet thing for May twenty four. I was I was very glad to grab it. Uh, the pandemic has been good. Supergirl has been great. You know, it's a sort of bummer that it's our last season, but I think we're 
we're uh, we're finishing it strong, which is nice. It's good. We're we're actually still in the room. Uh, we had uh, for a bunch of reasons. We had a sort of a weird writing schedule this year, uh, where we took most of the summer off, uh, mostly because Melissa was pregnant, but then also pandemic. Uh, and it's you know we've sort of readjusted what we were aiming at a little bit. Uh, but you know, Zoom rooms. We all know they're Zoom rooms. They're terrible. <laughs> Uh, no one likes them and hopefully we'll get maybe like a week when we're back in a room together before the show is done, but maybe not, we may never actually be in a room together. So, uh, that's, that part's weird, uh, and kind of a bummer. Wow. Uh, how have your rooms been, uh, Mike and tomorrow in terms of uh, virtual rooms? Oh, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love, uh, you know, people have, uh, found ways of doing like zoom bits, which is uh, pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, just to, you know, like someone, we, we actually had planned this one day, but like someone came on wearing like a plaid kind of shirt. And so like on our bathroom break, another person came back wearing a plaid shirt. And by the end of the day, everyone had, you know, started wearing just dumb stuff like that to, you know, or like if your screen, if you step out of frame for a second, our writer's assistant will screen cap your background and then she'll make it her virtual background <laughs> like she's in your house. Yeah. And she does, and she just switches it without saying anything. Nice. So. That's a really good bit. Yeah. That a, that's a solid bit. That is yeah. a solid bit. Her name yeah. is Talia Berger and she's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Yeah. It's been, uh, t- I mean, I know, uh, I know the first, I, I do miss the camaraderie of a writer's looseness and fun. And, uh, but I know like the first day driving back halfway into the drive, I'm going to be hating the fucking traffic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'll be trying to zoom from the car. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. I mean, in terms of like productivity and focus, uh, I, I found personally that like that goes up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of, it, it, I don't know if it's the same in drama, <laughs> but uh, in comedy rooms, there's, there's a lot of leaving the room to go to the bathroom uh, or a lot of like, I got to take this call and then they're gone for 20 minutes or a half hour. Um, and on the Zoom, there's a camera pointed at your empty chair <laughs> with your name on it. All the time. <laughs> and, uh, so I found... People really stay in the rooms and and stay focused. So that part of it's been good. But yeah, I do miss the human contact, the looseness, especially when we're trying to break a story. That's the mm-hmm. hardest I found uh, mm-hmm. by Zoom. How yeah. are you all getting your LaCroix? Is it being delivered directly <laughs> to you? Does the oh. writer drive around, the writer's assistant drive around town, you know, with requests? <laughs> I have to buy it myself like a schnook. Like an animal. <laughs> it's awful. Just when you thought you had it made. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, the like the hard part for me with the Zoom rooms and with breaking stories, actually, once we're sort of like into it and we've got like story beats and we're pitching off the board, that's the point where it's sort of like we're all here in this room and it's really just the showrunner and the writers of the episode like talking through beats for a long time where we're sort of like, uh, uh, yeah, maybe someone will pitch in something, but it's like it's this conversation that when you were in the room was a little looser, a little more sort of free flowing, but now is like. We're so locked in. Though I also have a question for y'all. Do you not turn off your cameras? 
Well, I do now that someone steals my background to pretend yeah, yeah. to be my house, <laughs> I turn it off every time. Every time I get up from my desk or go somewhere, I turn off my camera. And there have definitely been times when I like came back and was like, oh, I'm, I'm participating in the room. And like, oh, wait, I'm still muted and my camera is off. I've been here for five minutes. No one has any idea that I'm back. And no one ever asks. So maybe I don't know how productive I am. But but it's so obvious that you're not there. Even if you shut it off, your name is right across the screen. Oh, that's true. Like, Unless you... Who's missing, you know? And right. If in a normal room, if there's a, maybe you know, eight or 10 or 12 people in there, you can kind of slip in and out if you really, yeah, yeah. Once you really learn how to do it. You know? <laughs> so here's the here's the trick. Day one, oh, my webcam doesn't work. I have to be on audio only. Then they'll never know. Let's <laughs> yes. record like pre, pre phrases like, here's the bad bitch. Harris Bueller. I just like. I like car parking. algorithms. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Did you guys see that the uh, that uh, South Park COVID special where Cartman's just like, oh, bad connection, and then he goes, <laughs> <"Yeah."> <laughs> yeah. I was just saying that someone created like a, a machine learning algorithms that creates uh, that chooses different clips of himself to project uh, or show <laughs> depending on what people are talking about, so you can Smart. go to the next level. Mm. Yeah, it's deep. It's deep. It is tough, like pitching jokes to for the writers, you know, like because of the way Zoom operates and like where the audio kind of like one person, whoever like kind of talks first. And you don't know sometimes that someone else has talked because you're talking. Mm -hmm. Then you don't know, like, well, did did the joke just bomb or did nobody hear it? Should I pitch it again? like an asshole if i pitch it again yeah. there's a lot of that and and i'm sure you guys do the uh, there's a lot of no i'm sorry you go ahead no you go mm -hmm. ahead. yeah <laughs> yep it's also it's the worst when you because everybody is facing you that when you pitch something that people are thinking about or whatever to get like nine pairs of dead eyes looking at you <laughs> as opposed to just like one or two. Exactly. Oh. Everyone's on mute, so it's just silence. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Upsides, no one really knows when I'm checking my email uh, or on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, unless like I get really involved in Twitter and someone asks me a question and then I'm like, oh, that was for me. Okay. <laughs> Let me, you know. But yeah, other than that, it's great. <laughs> Excellent. And, and just really quickly, do you folks have any applications or software or, or uh, tools that you use to improve that whole uh, virtual writer's room experience? No. Uh, mm. No. 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 We we try to give everybody a break uh, about every hour, hour, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Let everybody walk away from the computer for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, you know, that's like stuff you wouldn't normally do in the room. Yeah. Uh, you do that just to try to keep people sane but i don't know about you i found like by around four o'clock you can you know you can feel the mental fatigue setting in you know just staring at the screen all day like we like, we haven't worked any nights this year mm -hmm. uh, and we and you know haven't even i don't think we've gone past maybe like the latest we did one day was like 5 30 whereas if we were in the room there would be you know, whenever you're like, if you're really behind, you got to get something done, you would stay till 9, 10, 11 just to get it done. And it's just that part's impossible on Zoom, I find. Oh, God, yeah. 
No, we only work. Yeah, we're working until four every day and just sort of like chilling. Like, yeah, and taking taking lots of breaks, taking a longer lunch. Yeah. Uh, and like we do get more focused, which is good. I mean, the you know, when when we were in the room, you know, my my bosses, the showrunners had a lot of responsibilities. And it's it's not like they have less, but it's just sort of the, the Zoom time is a lot more sort of concentrated uh, and we get a lot more of their attention when they're there. Right. Yeah. Yep. All right, uh, we're going to move along to our next topic, which uh, is about sort of managing uh, relationships, networking, the business side of things. And to do that, uh, we're going to be joined by the man who knows everybody, Mr. Jimmy Nguyen, uh, <laughs> <laughs> producer of uh, documentaries, baristas, game master, and uh, showrunners. Welcome, Jimmy. If hopefully hey, he's how's it going? Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can, can hear you. I actually don't know why my camera's not turning on. Uh, he wasn't my advice. <laughs> you have, uh, uh... <laughs> These are all pre-recorded bits from Jimmy. All right, there we go. Hey, welcome. Hey, Jimmy. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Fantastic. Chilling. I was watching K dramas before I jumped on. Ah. Oh, nice. Well, uh, so we are now going to be chatting a little bit about um, the business side of, of TV writing and managing your relationships. So uh, one of the things we want to talk about was kind of, you know, building those genuine relationships with people in the industry and making friends. Um, one question we had is, what are some of the biggest kind of networking faux pas and red flags that you guys have uh, seen or experienced? Oh, man. Faux pas. You know, I try to forgive people with the faux pas. You know, I, I think there's a lot of things that people tell you what not to do, but if you're receiving it on the other end, I try to be a little more kinder. Um, I get a lot of random messages on Instagram and on Facebook, and uh, a lot of those people have, uh, have turned into real friends. I try to be open to it because I know how awkward I was when I first came to town. I learned a lot of wrong, like lessons from people. Um, you know, just just really awkward stuff that I'm too embarrassed to talk about now. But when it happens to me, I uh, I don't know, I try to be cooler about it. So I, I just think that the easiest thing is reach out, even if it's awkward, even if it's like mm -hmm. a cold email, cold whatever, uh, just don't nag them. And I think that's mm -hmm. probably the biggest faux pas you could do is if you just keep on following up in a really annoying way, I think that'll really rub people the wrong way. But I think if you come at me in a really weird way one time, I'm okay with it uh, <laughs> because I know what it's like for a lot of people. And there's no, there's no book for that. Like nobody teaches that stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, what is weird? But like, what would feel really, really awkward to you versus what would feel professional? You know, I've had a lot of people walk up to me and it's just like, look, I'm not a famous guy, but when I was doing the showrunners rounds, I was doing a lot of Q and A. So people would recognize me in town. So I would be hanging out with friends and they would just walk up to me while, you know, and then just like strike up a conversation not aware that I like I'm hanging out with people living my life doing whatever. But you know, I I'm, I try to be really understanding, and cool about it. I'll give them my email address, and then I'll uh, I'll say, hey, hit me up later. And, you know, uh, but I've had a lot of people just like randomly walk up to me, and a lot of them turned into real friends. Like one of my closest friends just recognized me on the streets of Sundance and tapped me <laughs> on my shoulders and just said, hey, are you Jimmy Wen? I really love showrunners. Blah 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 blah. So, uh, you know, and that person became a really close friend of mine. 
Um, but I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Like, I don't know how to navigate networking. If you don't have direct connection, you just have to build up the, the courage just to like talk to people. And sometimes people are just like really mean when you try to do that. So I try to be kind back because I know how hard it is in this town. That's a good point. Uh, just quickly, uh, Tamara is going to have to leave momentarily. Did you have any uh, last thoughts on this topic before you, you leave us? Oh, just that, um, that it is about when you're networking, it's about building a relationship and not instantly asking someone to read your script. It's about cultivating a connection with that person and that you probably have a better shot of getting someone to read you if you sort of play that long game than uh, asking them within the first 10 minutes or whatever, the first interaction. Thank you for joining us tomorrow. Hey, it's Thank been great. Much. Congratulations awesome. again. Thank you so much. You. Jay, I love you. Love you. Nice to see nice you. Nice to Jimmy. And on that note, we have another guest. Uh, hopefully, uh, we introduced her earlier in this podcast, but hopefully this works uh, right now. My dear friend, uh, Frankie Butler, is with us. Uh, she's written on uh, shows like The Our Generation Q and uh, most recently on uh, Sweet Magnolias. Hi, Frankie. Are you, are you with us? So, full disclosure, I can't hear any of you. I'm having raging technical difficulties, and I'm going oh. to get back off. I love oh, you no. all. This is an utter failure. <laughs> oh no! Well, hopefully, hopefully, at some point in time. Oh, yeah. Any other thoughts on uh, the whole sort of networking, building relationships side of the business? I mean, I like just sort of along the lines with what uh, what Tamara was saying that like you want to build, you want to cultivate a relationship and build a relationship, and remember that it takes time. Like I know that there's a lot happening on Twitter. Right now, like we're all sort of trapped in our houses. And I know, at least for me, Twitter has become sort of my main sort of social outlet. Uh, and it's sort of a gathering place and it's a professional place and a social place and all of those things. And I think it's important to remember that even if, you know, someone's Twitter feels really confessional or feels really personal, it's not. It's it's a, a bit performative. You don't actually know this person. And like, I feel like sometimes people sort of take uh, a good response on Twitter to mean like, Oh, now we're buddies and I can mm. joke with you or I can, or I can interact with you in this way. And it's a bit like, no, we don't actually know you. I don't know you. So don't, you know, don't, assume that you know what i mean well on that note uh, speaking of the sort of the public facing aspect uh have you or looking back at the early points in your career uh ever successfully reached out to someone cold uh and if so how did that work did that work successfully uh especially on the professional sense uh <laughs> <laughs> I, my, my stories are so goddamn old uh, <laughs> half, the people, half the people in my stories are dead now <laughs> yeah. No, I used to you know, like you know, um, yeah, uh, you know, I used to do stuff like this is all like pre-internet stuff. So I was working at the mall at the Glendale Galleria, and sometimes like I would recognize the name of somebody coming in to pick up an order. We did like personalized coffee mugs and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I would uh, some I always had my spec scripts under the counter. So I would <laughs> the bag with their stuff and uh, things like that. Uh, I used to send out spec scripts cold to shows back in the days when you could do that. Dollar bills inside, uh, <laughs> and, and, and say if you read this, there's two more where this one came. <laughs> 
But I think you know, now it's it's like so much it's tougher on that side of like getting stuff directly to people. But yeah, like you're saying, like Twitter, uh, you know, opens up this whole other thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, where you can suddenly find yourself in a, you know, what you think is just saying, Hey, funny joke suddenly becomes a personal interaction. Uh, and I, I think Jimmy's right about like, or, or tomorrow too, like taking it a little bit slow. And uh, like you said, Jimmy, though, I think you got to kind of forgive if the first one is a little, clumsy or awkward because there is no kind of book on how to do that mm-hmm. uh, but it, then if it gets too much you know you might have to actually tell them like here's here's my rules or mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing and, and let them know kind of how it works otherwise if somebody doesn't tell them they'll continue to make the same mistake i think uh, that's just something to to watch out for yeah Definitely. Uh, we're going to introduce another guest now. We're joined by Hilliard Guess, who is the host. I'm hearing now our, my voice is going back. I'll just keep going. Anyway, he is the uh, host of TV Writer's Rant Room. He's written for uh, Deadly Class and a number of other awesome shows and movies. Welcome, Hilliard. What's up, everybody? What's up? Hey, Hilliard. I think you might be, I think the audio, our audio might be piping in through your speakers or something like that. Uh, okay. Give me a second. Oh, while we're waiting for that, I'll, I'll, if you want, I'll fill in. If if you give somebody a script, if they agree to agree, uh, read it, and you tell them, be brutal, be honest, <laughs> mm-hmm. don't get pissed off if they are honest with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. don't, don't get defensive. Just listen to everything they've got to say. It doesn't matter if you agree, disagree. Don't get into an argument about it. That's their opinion, and you're not going to change it. That's actually a great point about just uh, generally getting or asking for notes is if you're uh, giving your script to someone asking for notes, then expect notes back and also expect mm-hmm. them to ha- <laughs> for you to essentially enact on the note behind the note. Uh, if you're the one uh, spending the time to read the script and giving notes, then you want hopefully for the person to enact some of those choices, not necessarily your uh, solutions, but at least the general issues that you are addressing hopefully will be fixed in the next draft so uh that's just like respect on people's times uh just generally also just following on from that uh, you guys have talked about this in episode of the paper team but if you don't want notes and just want somebody to tell you that you're doing a great job just ask for that like people will be okay to do that it saves a lot more time <laughs> yep sorry technical very good we're yeah. trying to do a little bit of a tech cut <laughs> from the background. That's why it's a bit of a moment here. Uh, another question we had on the sort of uh, networking business side of things is taking meetings. Um, obviously, one of the mainstays of a writer's professional life is taking general meetings with executives, producers, covers, all that sort of thing. Um, how do you guys approach general meetings and then turning those into work and jobs down the road? I mean, a general meeting is for me, like, you know, it's mostly a vibe check. It's mostly a like, Hey, are you cool? Am I cool? Do we like each other? You know, it's a little bit of, there's a little bit of dog and pony show to it of sort of, here's the, the, the pattern that I, I, I do about myself and sort of like, are, are do you laugh at my jokes? And, you know, there's that, that sense of sort of, you know, uh, first dateness to it. Um, you know, uh, uh, turning that into something more, you know, that's, that's also building a relationship and building, making sure you're working with someone that you, you connect with and, uh, uh, and really sort of get and who gets what you're doing, you know? 
Excellent. Uh, and uh, what are some of uh, your own uh, strategies, if we can call uh, call them that, in terms of uh, meeting people? Uh, uh, I mean, I would say even now uh, in the pandemic world, the things have uh, shifted a lot in terms of networking uh, potential. Uh, how have you been able to continue building those relationships in uh, in a socially distant world? Oh, well, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, we when we were staffing up at the beginning of this season, we. Uh, we met a few people over Zoom and did the meeting that way and wound up hiring one of them. So there's one person in our room that, that we've been working with all year who we've never met in person. Like, I'm not even sure if he's tall. Or <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a little bit of a different, like the, the day we finally see each other in person is going to be so weird. Uh, yep. That's our whole relationship has just been over the computer. Uh, but the same rules apply. It is still you know, you know, and like someone's pointing out in the chat room, it's because you're going to be, you know, in a room with this person, you know, maybe for a lot of hours a day, or maybe multiple seasons or years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it is important, and you only have a little while to kind of make that connected. You got 15, 20 minutes. How busy the showrunner is. Uh, so, you know, come in prepared and don't sit back. I had somebody last year, like she came in kind of doing a bit of not wanting to talk about herself. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was like funny the first time, but then she kind of kept going with it. Uh, and it's like, well, I, she, she kept asking, you know, my wife and I questions about us. And after a while, I was like, well, our time is up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hilliard, how's your situation? Can we can we hear you now? And I'm good. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear yeah. you. Perfect. Awesome. What's up? What's up? Happy to be with you guys. That's what's up, man. Good to hear you guys. Thank you very much. Hey. Good to have you. Uh, yeah. uh, sorry, go ahead, Nick. Oh yeah, I was just saying. I think uh, you know, networking and, and meeting people and relationships is one of your big strengths, Hilliard. Do you have any sort of uh, advice uh, for writers out there about uh, how to go about that in a genuine way? Well. I was just thinking about it. Um, some of you guys know, you know, I'm the co-chair on the uh, at the Writers Guild for the Black Committee, as well as the mm-hmm. Education Committee with Jeff Melvoin and all these people. And people always ask me, why do I do that? And I always say, because one of the reasons is I'm a nosy person, right? So I like to know what the hell is going on at the Guild, you know? And so I'm always fascinated when I meet writers, you know, and some have never even been you know, and I know we can't go right now, but I'm generalizing in, you know, regular, you know, no run of time. And so what I found is there's so much information that I know that's happening there that others are totally unaware of, mm. you know, and it's because people don't fucking show up. Excuse my phrase. You know what I mean? And so um, so when I think about this, I think about that in particular and how many doors have opened because I'm sitting in the room next to said showrunner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and we're talking about whatever, and they just happen to realize, oh my God, this guy's this guy's hella smart. Let me ask him about this thing. And mm-hmm. they'll pitch something to me, and I go, Oh, that's cool, but what about this? And they'll be like, Oh, this guy would be perfect. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just happen to be in the room where it happens, you know. <clears throat> and so I'm always telling writers and Frankie knows because she's always in a lot of stuff too, is Put yourself in positions, you know, and in the rooms where these things can happen for you. So if you are able to join the Writers Guild, for example, and you're not showing up, it's your fucking fault. You know, mm-hmm. you should be in. There's 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 a committee for everybody, you know, 
and whatever the thing you love. If you're a genre writer, there's a committee for that. You know, if you're Asian, if you're black, if you're Latino, whatever the thing is that you claim to be gay, straight, whatever, there's a fucking committee for you. So you could be finding your ways in there. And you guys know I have a potty mouth, so I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. And even writers who maybe aren't eligible to join the guild yet, there are ways to get associate membership. If you're an animation writer, there are you can go as a guest of a friend who is a member and you can attend the events and, and yeah. things like that and start to get to know people that way. Frankie, what are your thoughts uh, on all this? Uh, you know, ho hopefully we can uh, hear you and everything is working. <laughs> no, no, we can't hear you. <laughs> no. Oh, Frankie. I'm so sorry. We can see you. We yeah, can we, hear you. We can uh, definitely see you. I think the microphone and the, might be different. The settings thing. We have a question from uh, one of our <laughs> viewers. I'm so sorry, Frankie, from uh, Knox Over Street Two, who asked: uh, Before COVID, I would invite people I admire to coffee, lunch, and uh, had some great success. But now I have no idea what to do. Invite them to Zoom with me. Uh, that seems a bit awkward. What are your thoughts on uh, inviting people to network? I think you should totally do that. Yeah. I think it's totally appropriate and makes sense. And, you know, Zooms are a lot easier these days because no one shows up late anymore. And it's, I don't know, it's just easy. You could be very efficient. You don't have to spend the whole hour. You know, you, you could Zoom with a lot of people all day. I think I've actually gotten more requests to get coffees over Zoom, uh, like in this period of time than in any other, you know, year. And I'm super cool with it. And I love it. And it's easy. And I don't have to like comb my hair or, you know, you know, dress up or any of that stuff, look for directions, drive anywhere. It's, it's kind of nice, honestly. I, I love it. So yes, definitely reach out to people. And if they don't respond, no big deal. But I think more people will be down to Zoom if you just ask. Can I, can I say something here? Uh, just to yeah, piggyback no. off of what he's talking about. I think, I think I talk about this a lot, even on my podcast about how, <clears throat> you know, we live in a time when things are a lot different. You know, I've, I come from the era when I was writing before the internet even really was anything, you know, and you, a lot of these kids today, I'll call them kids. I mean, in general, everybody is, it's so much easier for you to be a Twitter friend of somebody and reach out and go, Hey, you know, can we do a zoom and mm -hmm. somebody will make some time. I mean, like that, you know, people hit me all the time going, Hey, do you have five minutes? You know? And I'll be like, you know, I have five minutes, 20. I don't, but five, I do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So you just have so much more access now, you know, to these things. So if you're not taking advantage of that, to me, again, that's your fault. <laughs> you know, it's right there. Yeah. Uh, just going to outro a couple of our guests who have to leave us now, Alex Switsky and also Jay Haltham will be stepping away. Thank you guys so much for joining Thank us. You Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Good to see you. I see you, Jay. Nice you guys. All right, see you guys on the three hundred. Thanks for being with us. Three hundred, yes. <laughs> all right, bye. All. bye. See you. All right, take care, folks. Uh, oops, uh, there you go. Uh, we're try still trying to figure out uh, things with uh, with Frankie here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I can speak for Frankie. Yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> I will say, if you're uh, like going, in, like I don't do like a lot of like general meetings, but like if you're going in like specifically to meet on a show about the possibility, you know, of a staff job you know, come in ready. You know, you, you've got a very brief window of time. You don't know how short it can be. Uh, we can always make room to ex like stretch a meeting out. Uh, but we can also collapse it and make it in faster if it ain't happening. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want to come in ready. You want to be able to talk about the show that you're there to 
try to get a job on and talk about if you've been lucky enough, like maybe you've seen the pilot or read the pilot script, you know, talk about things like of how you connected to it, something maybe from your personal life, whatever it is, you know, any way that you had a personal connection. Every writer loves to be told how great their pilot is. They're not looking for your honest opinion. Uh, you know, we've had months of that leading up to it. So, you know, we don't need that. But if you can make a personal connection, and if you don't see one, just fucking make one up, man. <laughs> just, just, say, just say, oh, yeah, my uncle was like that. Just, you know, anything, because we have a limited amount of time and money that we have to work with, and you want to try, and you're trying to put together people, you know, with different walks of life, different life experiences. So, you know, try to, you know, be ready to make that connection and, um, and, and, and try, and, you know, so you want it, you want an impression, like assume that they're meeting a hundred people and they're going to hire eight and you want to be, you know, in the mix on those eight. So that's the, the idea of leaving an impression when you walk out the door. Well, on that note, uh, we have a question from uh, one of our listeners, Ron Santi, who asks, uh, what are you looking for specifically that will help uh, that person get your attention, especially during a show owner meeting? Um, for me? I'm sorry. Is that yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I want them to be ready. I want them to be engaged in the conversation. I am looking to, you know, to hear what they what they responded to in the pilot or the script that they read, what what they connected with. And if I have specific questions, you know, with Duncanville, we were asking everybody, uh, what kind of a teenager were you like? Um, and a lot of them went, just went, yeah, nothing special, kind of boring. And they, <laughs> like, hey, that's, yeah, <laughs> we don't have a character like that. So, uh, <laughs> shitty answer. Hey, uh, can, I, can I answer, can I answer a little bit of this from a writer? Sure, no you don't mind? So I, I talk about this a lot. I do a lot of assignments. And I, I found that about three years ago when everything turned around for me was when I leaned in on that thing I didn't want anybody to know. You know, yeah. as soon as I started telling people about growing up in the whole punk rock scene back in, in the 80s and all this stuff, people started going, what? <laughs> you know, and I started talking about being the underdog and I love underdog stories and blah, 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 blah. It started becoming this thing. So yeah. whenever I go into um, to a meeting at any company or production company or whatever, I lean into that, and when they tell me, for example, they go down the roster of the shows that they have or the projects that they want to do, I immediately click in on something that happened to me when I was a child and go, yeah. oh, I don't know if I told you this thing. Yeah. Remember, you, remember <laughs> you were telling me about that movie you guys want to do? Well, guess what? When I was in the 70s growing up here, I grew up around the Panthers and blah, 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 blah. And I go into this thing and I'll fucking cry if I have to. You know what I mean? Because I want you to know I'm emotional and I'm passionate about something, you know? And that he, Mike was just talking about how do you not forget you? They won't forget that dude who told you a real story. Exactly. Yeah. You feel me? And that's what I've learned. Lean into that thing you want nobody to know about. That's the thing for me. Yeah, a couple of the writers that we did wind up hiring on our show just like shared really humiliating, awkward teenage story. Mm -hmm. Their lowest moment as a teenager. Right. The story they wished had never happened to them is ultimately kind of what made them stand out and got them hired. And it was like, if they're willing to share that here, they'll do great in the room. And they probably have many other humiliating stories. Exactly. That they have yeah, you don't have to convince people that you're cool and infallible. You, you want to convince people that you're interesting and have fun stories and things that you can draw upon 
Absolutely. Uh, All right. Absolutely. That's going to translate to your writing as well. Being uh, vulnerable and open about those awkward, uh, painful experiences will de definitely translate to the way you write those things. So being able to pitch yourself in that capacity, uh, it's a bit of uh, akin to branding yourself as a person. It's, oh, that person is memorable because of those stories, because of those experiences that nobody else has. Yeah. Also, uh, I interviewed a writer, uh, Tim Long, who's been on The Simpsons for 20 plus years now. But in our first meeting, I still remember he he's from Canada and he told me a story about being in school and uh, a snowstorm coming while they were in school. So school was canceled for snow, which they were excited about, but then they couldn't get out of the school. So they had to spend <laughs> the week in the school. Uh, and as soon as he told that story, I thought it was hilarious. So I thought, I, I, you know, this guy is great already and he had great recommendations. Now he's told me a story that I know is going to be the first episode I ask him to write for The Simpsons. Ooh. So, you know, already I'm crossing off one story off the board for the next season. Hello. That's great. Uh, and just stepping back for a second, before we get to that shorter meeting, a lot of people when they're first starting out or first making the rounds are going to go through that water bottle meeting, uh, taking a lot of general meetings, studio to studio, network to network. Uh, how do you turn that general meeting into a job or at least a worthwhile connection that might lead you to a job down the line? Well, I'll, I'll add some more to this because um, this happens to me all the time. <clears throat> um, what I've found is, for example, you go, on a, you go on a meeting for an assignment, for example, and what I've found is I'm always listening to – they'll tell you the roster of all the things that they have going on, right? I'm always listening for that one thing, number one, that I connect with, but I'm also trying to go – like sometimes they'll give, give you a whole list of things that nothing is in your wheelhouse, you know, or it doesn't really resonate for you. So I'll go, just out of curiosity – What's that one thing you guys really wish you want to do? You know, what's that passion thing you guys are really trying to pull that you haven't been able to do? And they go, oh, we've been wanting to do this Emmett Till thing forever. And I'll go, oh, really? You know what I mean? And I'll lean in on that thing. And I'll, be, and I'll explain to them why it resonates to me and how I could have done it with my underdog way of writing it. And that's how I usually get a job. You know, so what I always tell people, you can find every single producer out there no matter how busy they are, has one or two passion projects that they're too busy to do. Try to get that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's what I've found. And every year, five or six projects come through that I'm able to do. So that's what I've found. And, so. if, you, and if you worked on another show, if you've been on other shows prior to that meeting, do not badmouth yes. the show or the people who ran it. You never know who you're talking to, but it also makes me wonder, well, what the hell are they going to say about me when they leave? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, always focus on what were the positives of the show. Even if everyone in town knows the show was a, a nightmare to work on like that, don't go there. Like, just talk about what you did learn from it and, you know, that, you know, uh, because it's a sm very small town. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, we are going to be taking another short break again on the stream. Uh, we'll transition over to another topic. I know that Mike has to leave us, so thank you so much for joining us and having a chat. Uh, Jimmy, thank Hilliard, you you're more than welcome to stick around after the break, but if you need to go to, that is fine. And yeah. uh, we'll see everyone back in a couple of minutes. Happy 200th, guys. Very thank you so much. much for being with us. We're back. Frankie is with us, hopefully. 
let's move on to our next topic. And that is something that uh, both Hillard and Frankie have had uh, a lot of experience with. And that is being in a, a writer's room staff and especially looking at the angle of how can you be useful when you have been staffed in a writer's room, especially more on, more on the lower end of the spectrum. How do you make yourself valuable as a staff writer in that position? Well, I was, did I tell you guys about there was a time in deadly class, like a few weeks in, um, I'd pitched this moment as, as you guys know, I grew up in a whole punk rock world and whatnot. <clears throat> and because the show's out, I don't feel like I'm giving anything away. I mean, you've seen the show. Um, there was a, like a mosh pit type of a scene that we were talking about, you know, doing, they come from the comic book, but they weren't sure how to get into it. And I went, well, if me and my mod friends were there, here's what we would have done. And I explained it to them with very visually. And, and Rick Remender turned to me and went, okay, you got to write that like that. And I went, okay. So I, me being me, I went home. I think it was on a Friday. And by Sunday I sent him this whole like three page scene fully decked out with, with the characters, with Marcus's voiceover, like as it was straight out of the comic book, straight out of, you know, um, straight out of the scene. And by Monday morning, we come in the room and Rick's pacing the room. And he's and, I, and everybody's like, is he okay? And he turned around and he was like, I got it. He was like, everybody in this room is going to do what Hilliard just did. So everybody kind of had to, I hope I'm not giving, I don't think I'm giving away. This is just, you know, what it is <laughs> in the room. So everybody in the room had to do this eventually. Like everybody had to pick a character and write like a two or three page scene, you know, showing what they think about the character and put them in scenarios and blah, 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 blah. And it opened up this way for us to really start to see the characters in a different view. So it's just not the comic all the time, you know, so that we could push them in the stories that we had from our own lives. Very interesting because uh, that shows that you're able to take ownership a little bit on that specific character, on that specific story, but also contrib contributing as a whole to the group dynamic of a writer's room, which is so important. And I think yeah. is one of the most difficult things to do in a writer's room is that little ego check that you got to do at the beginning where you're like, okay, I'm, I am part of a whole, but at the same time, I've been chosen in that role because of my voice, because of the things I bring to the table. So navigating that balance, I think uh, that's a, a great way to do it. And, and one of the things I think that I did that was smart was, and I always tell people about this, <clears throat> like when you're writing somebody else's show, some people think, oh, well, it's my episode. So I'm writing it the way I write. I'm like, no bitch, copy what they did. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we all know from Deadly Class, the way that Rick and Miles wrote those voiceovers was very, very specific to the way the comic book was. So I went through the comic over that weekend that I wrote that and found a passage that we hadn't used yet and incorporated it, you know, with all these cool visuals with, with Marcus's voiceover. And it ended at this perfect little crescendo. You know what I mean? So I almost felt like a big button, you know, it ended on this big moment in the mosh pit where everything just went chaos, you know, so like, doing <clears> your work ahead of the, ahead of the class, so to speak. Exactly. <laughs> I was deadly, bitch. I was deadly. Nice. <laughs> uh, we have another guest to bring into the conversation. We are joined by uh, Carolyn Levitch, who has written for One Day at a Time, The Bold Type and The Great North. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi. Hi. Sorry, I'm a little late. I was just enjoying the show. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait, I have to log in. <laughs> all good. It's all good. You, all good. Thanks for being with us. Frankie, I <laughs> hopefully. Uh, Can we see. hear you? What? 
Hey, hey. we can hear you. Can you hear yes. us? What? Yes, I can. Yes. I can hear yeah. you. You can hear me. We can see each other. This is a thing that has been at this point an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> Incredible. I'm so glad we got it to work. Uh, yeah. Do you, do you want to share some insights on um, how you can be a, a valuable writer in a room? What you can do to kind of stand out? Oh, gosh, I feel like I always stand out in the absolute worst ways um, at work. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of standing out, confidence is a good thing. Um, be confident in what you're pitching and also being supportive. Uh, like, I think I feel like my superpower in the room is always I will find a way to make the thing somebody else is pitching work. Um, like I can be the logic police, anyone can be the logic police, but also being the person who helps find the ways around the bumps and it's, and being the person who's like, okay, you are, you really, really want to do this thing. Um, and we think it's not going to work because of X, Y, and Z. Well, I can give you A, B, and C and this pitch that you were completely in love with is definitely going to work. Because, you know, I just kind of drove us around the logic curves and made it seem like, you know, a thing that we're going to do. So being supportive of other people is a really good thing to do. Because even if the pitch doesn't always end up following all the way through, like people will remember that you are the person who lifted them up rather than being the person who shat on every single idea they, they had. And there's value to that. <laughs> it's about solving those problems, not uh, just uh, shining a light on them and then, you know, walking away from the wreckage. Right. And it's not a competition in the writer's room. You're all working towards the same goal. So you want to be supportive of each other. And if someone has a great idea, if you can add to that, if you can build on that or help fix any of the problems in that, that can be as good or better than pitching your own idea. And Caroline, what has been your experience in a room and, and your, uh, your thoughts on being a valuable member of that room? Um, I was, I love what Frankie just said. I completely, oh my gosh, I'm right there. It's like watching myself talk. <laughs> um, I, uh, completely agree. But what, when she said confidence, I think that's something that I would really, um, would tell my younger self. I was so nervous to speak in a writer's room. Um, and so I didn't talk for the first couple of weeks. And I think that I actually had the showrunner take me aside in my first writer's room and be like, you need to talk. Like we hired you for your voice. We hired you for your thoughts. And I was like, but everyone else is so much better than me. Why, what, what do I have to contribute? And it took a lot of time to build that confidence to feel like I could talk and that my ideas had value. And I know that some people can go the opposite way and they talk a bit too much. Um, I feel like you're either, you talk too much or you talk too little. And, um, but that the confidence to believe in your ideas Definitely, I think is uh, something you need. Well, and sorry, I was just going to jump no. off what Caroline just said, and also knowing knowing your moment, um, plus that confidence. Because, for example, in almost every single room I've been in, the when the writer's assistant and the script coordinator and our support staff uh, feel that it's time for them to jump in with a pitch, it's always fucking amazing because they've spent so much time considering it. And also these are the people who have the story in their brains in ways that like some of us can like let it, I don't know, like filter out our ears at the end of the day. But when you're the person who's sitting there and typing up the notes and all of that, like everything is in your brain, like, no, but guys, we did this thing two episodes ago. So if we connect to that with the thing that we want to do two episodes from now, and we mix them together and here, and like, they're always amazing. So just like, choosing your moment and also even if you're just support staff like 
every single room I've been in, the support staff fucking killed it with the pitches. So don't be afraid to jump in if you're in that position. And on that note, in terms of jumping in, how do you gauge when to jump in? And uh, how do you wager sort of, okay, this is the moment or this is when I should hold back? I think I always tell every writer, Carolyn was saying when she first came in, like the first few weeks, she was quiet, but I bet you were observing, you know? <clears throat> and I'm sure that that made you take a step back and go, oh, whenever Frank talks, you know, it's like this. Whenever John talks, it's like this. And you start to put things together and you start to see that the room has built their own like second language, so to speak. And and you start to see the dynamics and like you go in different rooms and you realize people actually pitch differently in different rooms. It's funny. You think mm -hmm. you get in there and everybody's the same, but it's not true, you know? <clears throat> and for example, in our room on, on Deadly Class, for example, it turned out to be a very personal room. And it's because our showrunners came from a personal place with the book. So everybody would pitch and you'd be surprised how many times somebody would cry about a story that happened to them as a teenager. You know what I mean? And so, so that was the, the dynamic that I saw is once people open themselves up that the truth is being told, then everybody else knew it was okay to tell the truth, you know, and to tell their story that way. So I would suggest watch the room for a day or two and see the dynamic. And one of the things that I'm really good at is spotting the one who's really, really good at, at a certain style of pitching and putting my tag on theirs, you know, and utilizing the way that they pitch and doing it my way too. You know what I mean? And then the whole room will adjust to that also. And everybody will start to pitch exactly like that. It's, a, it's just a weird thing. You know. Yeah, uh, we have a question from the chat related to uh, the earlier point about confidence. Um, Jay Bruckner says, how did you develop that confidence or do you just sort of fake it until you make it? Fake it until you make it for me. I am the most nervous, neurotic, least confident person on the face <laughs> of the planet. Um, and I feel like Hilliard's laughing at me because he sees me just stand up in the middle of rooms and like run my mouth off yes. like nobody's business <laughs> kind of constantly um, and it took a lot of just bravado and just acting my ass off until I got to the point where that was even 10% actually real I want to um do you mind if I tell a quick little story on something that happened I know I'm talking a lot and I apologize no, no, um, <laughs> I'm not, I, I can't remember if we talked about this guys but there was a moment where we were sitting at the table this is probably like two weeks into the show and there were a couple of the um, producer level writers talking about philosophy and I was sitting there going I have no freaking idea what they're talking about you know, we were, you know, sometimes you have moments where nobody's talking about the actual show. They're just talking about whatever. And I was just finding myself shrinking in the room going, why am I here? Now, I've been writing for 15, 20 years by that point, And I still was sitting there going, why am I here? You know, I have no reason to be here. I shouldn't be here. And I looked down at the table and there was our master book of all the comics. So I was like, eh, I'm just going to busy myself. So I pull it out. And I start flipping through the pages and I stop on one of the covers of this character that was supposed to come in season two named Maud Steven. And he was like me, you know, rode a scooter, dressed 60 style, you know, this type of guy. And I stopped and I just started smiling. And I was like, oh, that's why I'm here. None of these people in this room know anything about this. I was there in San Francisco in the mod scene. I know this. 
So I was like, they can talk about philosophy all they want. When we talk about this, I got it. So my little moment that I had where I shrunk into that, I don't deserve to be here moment, switched for me. And I was like, oh, they have their ability and I have my superpower, you know? And, and from then I never had it again. You know what I mean? So I don't know if that answered the question, but that was just a little, you know, right. so finding story. what you can offer that nobody else yeah. can in the room. And knowing that that does exist because mm-hmm. no matter how high level somebody is, no matter how many years they've been working, there is something they are bad at. There is something that they don't know. Okay. No one you're working with is perfect. You're not perfect either. But just, I think, sometimes remembering that all of you are flawed and every single person above you has fucked up and stuff majorly at some point in their career will make it, I think, a little bit easier to remind yourself that you have value and that you deserve to be there mm-hmm. because you are every single bit as deserving as every other person in that room. And if you have to, you know, take five minutes to go to the bathroom and look in the mirror and tell yourself that, um, which in some rooms you will need to do that more than in others. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just taking a minute to remind yourself that you deserve to be there. And if you tell yourself that every day, I think the the knowledge that that is true will come. Yeah, you can remind yourself that the emperor has no clothes every day. You're like, Kind of just to piggyback off what Frankie is saying, um, the anxiety that I think a lot of us feel, it feels very lonely at first because you're like, I'm so nervous and all these people are so good at this job. Um, and I remember when I first started writing and I would walk to my car with a couple other writers and one guy was like, I can't believe I said that today and I hadn't, I haven't stopped thinking about it. And the rest of us were like, what? We don't remember that. I have no mm-hmm. idea what you said. That was not a thing. I was thinking about something else. And it was so comforting to me because I was like, I fixate on things too. Like I think that I say things and then I fixate on them and then I'm unhelpful for the rest of the day, which is Mm -hmm. something that in that moment, I was like, oh, I have to get over this because we're all feeling this way and you have to forgive yourself and just be like, we're not lonely in that anxiety. All of us are neurotic writers. So yeah, Yeah. I think it was uh, Mike Scully who was on earlier and he said that, you know, when the showrunner is driving home, they're not thinking about, man, that one staff writer said something really dumb earlier. They're thinking about all the deadlines they've got with the studio. They're thinking about going home to their families. Like that's not the first thing on their mind. So like, don't be afraid to, to fail, you know, for sure. Uh, moving on to sort of a craft topic for a minute, when you're in the writer's room in those early days, when you're kind of doing all of the um, blue skying, big picture stuff, do you have any tips on how you approach kind of pitching those big ideas uh, in the first few weeks? Um, I think, go ahead, Frankie. No, sorry. Go ahead, Hilliard. Uh, I was just thinking about what's really helpful is, and this goes back again, every room is different. You know, sometimes you come in on a show and it's the showrunner or showrunners are so detailed that they already have you know, all 10 episodes figured out. They just haven't worked out the other little minor details. <clears throat> and then some shows you come on and they're like, here's the pilot. We have no idea what the hell we're going to do with this show. You know, and those are actually funner to me because you get the opportunity to really contribute in a way. And that's why that I know that um, Mike was talking about um, when you go on your meeting, and you got to attach to find, find ways to attach to a character. You know what I mean? So when you go on your general meeting, for example, with a showrunner, you will find ways to go, wow, I read the script or I saw the pilot and the character of Frankie was like this. She reminded me of my sister. You know what I mean? Hella funny like this, blah, 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 blah. And you tell these stories that, that, that you connect to, 
you know, so that when it comes to pitching over that whole thing, I start thinking about those things I thought about that made me love the show in the first place. And I go, wow, now, now that we're doing this show, remember I was telling you guys in my meeting about how there was a time when Frankie and I were kids and we did this thing, you know, what if Donovan's character did blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? You start to pick up those things. You start to see by the, by episode five, we could get to this moment so that in the, the final, you know, episode, she now discovers that she's pregnant, whatever the fuck, you know what I mean? And so, so that's, that's one thing that I do. You just keep it as linear as possible. And then you start to divulge backwards, if you will. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. And what you said, just jumping off of finding the thing that you loved um, that made you say yes to the project in the first place, or if it's a project that you don't actually love and you just took the job because you desperately need to pay the bills, um, <laughs> finding the thing that you're, you, we're all going to have that job at some right. point in time. Um, I've been lucky and that I've loved every single thing I've worked on thus far. Um, so you can't go back on my IMDb and um, <laughs> <laughs> about anything I've worked on. Um, but yeah, finding the thing that you love about the project, or if it's a project that you're lukewarm on, a thing that you can, a thing that you can love about the project and working out from there. Yeah. I'm a character writer, like down to my bones. So for me, it's always going to be, okay, who are these people? What made them this way? What do I want to see this person do going forward? Um, I have friends who are the plottiest plot people ever and will be like, okay, well, you already set up this, this, and this. So clearly we can get to the grand conspiracy in which the Vatican like blows up the Pentagon by like episode five. And I don't know why I the Vatican is blowing up the Pentagon. I'm not a plot writer. <laughs> I want to watch this show. Yeah, but like just kind of jumping, finding the thing that you love and what you, pitching as a viewer. Like what we do is fucking fan fiction. Like mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. We're fan fiction writers. So mm -hmm. what do you want to see? And then just go and then just run at it full speed ahead. Well, let me introduce our next uh, guest on uh, on this topic. Uh, our uh, good friend Evelyn Eve, who uh, is a writer, was a writer on Katie Keen and is on the uh, and is on the Kings of uh, Napa. So welcome, Hi. Evelyn. Hi guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, for, Thanks for being with us. Uh, we're talking about uh, what were we talking about? Being valuable in the room, being a staff writer, uh, and uh, what are, what is your advice about uh, sort of making uh, yourself valuable in that capacity? Um, I think you guys had some really great advice thus far. Um, I don't know if I have that much to add. I think something that I did is like I tried to build relationships with all of the writers in the room and the support staff as well because I think that's always really valuable. Um, yeah, that's that's basically <laughs> that's that's all I have to add on that. approach, <laughs> especially those first few days in the room. How do you approach or try to contribute in the more grander picture? Um, the first few days are always really tough. I think um, one of the things, and I think you guys talked about this already, but just gauging like what the rooms like and what people's personalities are like, I think is always like a good way to start. So you know like how much or how little to talk. Um, Cause I feel like every room's kind of different, right? Like sometimes there are a lot of like big talkers. So you kind of have like a lot of like competing personalities or sometimes like 
people are more quiet. So it, it also kind of really depends on your showrunner, I think, and like whether or not they're big on like hierarchy um, and whether or not they want you to talk as a staff writer. Also off of the whether or not they want you to talk, knowing what your showrunner's thinking phase looks like. Yeah, mm. that's a real, that's, that's good. <laughs> Which is so hard over Zoom. It took it me is. like a yeah. month longer over Zoom to real to figure out what my current boss's like thinking face was. Whereas in person, like I can read the body language and like you get used mm -hmm. to it, but knowing what it feels like when we're spinning our wheels and like jumping in is valuable and knowing what it looks like when the boss is just mulling things over and everybody needs to shut the hell up so he or she can like process is very important. That's so true. And I feel like over Zoom as well, like you're concerned with like what your face looks like, like how you're reacting to people. <laughs> uh, I feel like you don't like you don't really worry about that like in person, right? Because you don't know, like you don't know how you come across. But I feel like over Zoom, like you see yourself and then you're like concerned with like, I don't know. That, I mean, that's what I worry about too. <laughs> yeah, Evelyn, I, I agree. And also something that you just made me think about that I really miss that we don't have on Zoom anymore. I mean, we have don't have anymore now that we're on Zoom and it is sort of in the blue sky is my favorite stories come out of when writers are just like, we're in the room, we're just hanging out, someone's telling a story and then it leads to another story, it leads to another story and everyone's like, we're so off track, we're not doing anything for work. Yeah. And then it leads to a story and they're like, well, what if that happened to mm -hmm. Rocky, our main mm -hmm. character, you know? And it's like, oh, that's super interesting. And then it's like, that becomes this amazing story that feels so relatable and organic because it really happened to somebody. And, you know, of course we changed it in different ways and that doesn't really happen on zoom anymore. Cause zoom is so, at least my zoom room, it's like, we work from the minute we sign on to the minute we end. You can't really just like shoot the shit on there. Yeah. And we've sort of lost that. And I miss that. Yeah. So for sure. you can't have like snack breaks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't bond in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, and another question we wanted to discuss, uh, not necessarily related to being in the room, but it, it can as well, is uh, people always talk about a writer's voice. Uh, what do you think a writer's voice is? How do you kind of quantify that? And, and why is it important? Good question. I, th I think it's about how you feel. Like, um, I mean, some sometimes people think it's about style. You know, it's about the way that you write it and the, the style and the, the way that you do your transitions, and, you know, your dialogue and all the other stuff. <clears throat> but I also think it's about like I can tell from reading a writer um, after doing this for 20 something years now, you know, exactly where the voice is. You know, is it in humor? Is it in is it in tension? Is it in, you know, is it in action? Like if some reason I can feel it when they're doing it. Like I tell a lot of writers that when it's time for you to write your episode, where you have the most fun is in descriptions. You know, that's where, at least in my, in my background, where, where you get a chance to play the most. Otherwise, the characters are pretty much gonna stay the same. You know what I mean? But in, in the descriptions is where you can play and do a little bit more of you, you know, as long as you stay within the realms of the show. And so to me, keeping that voice is that's where you can remind them, hey, I can, I, I'm really good at action, let me show you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you can write that, but you come back to the characters looking and feeling the same exactly on the page. But when they're in the moment of, you know, pushing the story forward through this action sequence, that's where you can play. At least that's what I found, you know? 
And how do you make that work uh, within the script, especially on staff? How do you use that voice or that personal perspective, injecting it into, uh, especially if you're given an episode that for all intents and purposes is fully broken, hopefully, <laughs> if you're in a, a productive room, uh, and injecting your own personality in, uh, in those pages? Well, usually by the time you get to the, t the point the episode is broken, or at least in my experience, there's some of you in the show already. Like there is some of a little bit of every single writer on the staff in that show, even, and in a good show, it's so interwoven that you can't always even pull it out exactly. But there have, I can think of like certain coworkers um, whose voice completely and utterly imbues a character and so by the time I get to like writing the script, I'm like, okay, like, like it's just their voice and my voice imbues the show in another way. So a lot of times it's not in the actual sitting down and writing it with the pages because you did it in the break, uh, if that makes any sense mm -hmm. at all. Right. You used your voice earlier on in the process and now it's about executing the specific vision of that episode. We have a question from one of our, our listeners, Director Hawk, who asks, have you ever left a pitch feeling completely deflated? Uh, and if so, how did you overcome that feeling? Alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> this just happened to me before Thanksgiving, actually. Um, a project that me and my producing partner are going out with. Um, sometimes you go into a room and you can feel it. Something's not right. And in this case, we were on Zoom and I could just tell by the way that the executive was late, you know, and and almost you could tell she was looking at her clock. And I was like, why did she take this call? <laughs> you know, so I start going out of what I'm doing, you know, and I'm not somebody who goes out of what I'm doing. Frankie notes, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was it made me off because she was off, you know, and then it made my producing partner off because I was off, you know. And so, so it, it's, it's going to happen. Every pitch isn't going to be perfect. That's the thing that I've learned. The, the good thing is it happened to be at one of the companies that I didn't really want it to be at anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I'll go, but I don't think this is the right, right place for this one. You know what I mean? And it's probably not. You it's know? one of the early pitches that you set first so that you can fail and it doesn't matter. And you put the most important <laughs> ones at the end when your pitch is all yeah, the Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what about taking that in the room? Uh, this is something that you talked about before a little bit in terms of realizing that no one else thinks about you as much as you think about yourself. But uh, how do you rebound from a failed pitch in the room mentally, but also, uh, in the, I mean, practically speaking, in the room? For me, it helped that I had a partner, you know, and in, in, on that project in particular, because she was able to say, well, you know, yeah, that one wasn't good, but we got to go back, you know, before this, before you know, right after Thanksgiving and pitch it to this company now, you know, so here's the adjustments we're going to do. You know what I mean? And so we immediately clicked in and you almost kind of forget it. You almost use it as rehearsal, you yeah. know, and, and I, somehow here's the cool thing though. I was talking about this earlier. I'm really good about going in and on a meeting and coming out with a pitch or a job or something. And <clears throat> it's because it, like I said, I always bring it back to what's the thing they're looking for. So even though we had a bad pitch, I still turned it around and she was like, oh, well, if you're going to do that, come back with that. You know what I mean? So it, I still turned it around, even though it, it, 
in, inside, I was like, fuck, I wanted her to get that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. And ter- for me, turning it around in the room, I don't necessarily suggest that anyone do this, but uh, I have a tendency to come down with, with a case of the fuckets when I know that I'm failing. <laughs> well, I've already eaten it. I'm like, I'm eating it just right now. Fuck it. Might as well just have fun. Mm. And like sometimes just kind of letting go and realizing that, okay, well, you're not going to the perfectly like polished version of this that you have been working on is not going well right now. But you're getting to like talk about a story that you really dig in front of a bunch of strangers. Let's just have a good time with it. Mm-hmm. Um, which will not always turn it around and like help you sell the thing, but it will make you feel a little bit more confident about it. And it will kind of allow you to sort of showcase your personality more, be a little bit more confident and feel a little bit more like a human being for the rest of the the next 20 minutes that you were stuck in that room with the executives who are definitely not going to buy your project. I think it's also just keeping in mind, like I've been on two first season shows now. And even though um, you always have that moment of like, oh shit, my pitch didn't land. Like, do I not get the show? Or like, did I just, you know, mess up somehow? But I feel like if you just kind of keep in mind that you're there to support like the showrunner's voice and like their vision, then it kind of helps like take your ego out of the equation. Then mm-hmm. it's like, it's okay if you fail. Cause like, you're all kind of figuring it out together. Um, and as long as, you know, you keep like trying, <laughs> then it'll be okay. Well, especially in those uh, early seasons, uh, especially the first season, how do you go about figuring out what the voice of the show is? Uh, practically speaking. I think it's, it's really just like listening to what pitches the showrunner responds to and, Usually, like, it'll be pretty clear, like, tonally or, like, thematically, at least, like, what what they really respond to. And then you kind of, like, try to pitch towards that. That's how I I tried anyway. Yeah. So much of it is just getting to know your boss. Like, if you know who your boss is, if you've read the pilot backwards and forwards, and you genuinely, like, listen to not only what they respond to, but what they don't respond to, what they bitch about what they talk about their, in their, when they bring up their personal lives, what their gripes are, then like that helps so much in just like figuring out, okay, what does this person want? Um, question I had was sort of regarding notes and rewrites. How do you guys deal with uh, getting big notes or you know, having your stuff rewritten on you know, points that perhaps you don't really agree with or feel strongly about, take whether every, it's the studio or other writers? Take every notes call on mute. I am dead ass serious because you are going to scream at the phone. You are going to think that some things are dumb uh, and you are not the showrunner. You're not the person whose job it is to respond to those notes. Just take the call on mute. uh, Like let go of your anger while that's happening. And then once you've done that, you can, it makes it easier to be like, okay, doing my job now. Um, I mean, I'm, currently co-creating a couple shows and it's fascinating to me some of the i can't even give it away some of the, <laughs> some of the people you work with who give you notes and 
and we've all heard this where people are like giving you notes sometimes just to make it feel like they're giving you a note. <clears throat> sometimes that's like the worst reason. And what I found luckily, and like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm really, I figured out a way to take a note, hear it, write it down in, you know, in my subconscious, but then come back and figure out, oh, it was the note behind the note. If I could figure out how to get to what it is the problem was, then I don't have to change that. It probably was something I set up that just didn't answer that question right. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and the more I figure that out, so even when I return it back and I send in the next draft, I'll say, by the way, I think I answered your note on page 17. I did the thing where the little girl picked up the, the doll. You missed that. <laughs> Whatever it is. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll, I'll just go back and make them feel like they got their answer done. You know what I mean? They got their, their note answered, if you will. Um, and that way I don't take it as personal. But it took, took a long time to get to that place. And, yeah. and it also depends on who's giving the note and when yeah. and why. Because, for example, if you're on a studio or network notes call for a show that you were staffed on, you're probably going to have a conversation with your boss about that notes call after the notes and you and your showrunner will decide, okay, what did they mean by that note? Uh, your boss will decide if you're taking that note or not. Like, so a lot of it's just not on you. It's like, you still have to deal with your feelings about it. And that is why friends and partners and therapists are good. <laughs> but the actual like doing of the notes and deciding how to handle that, there is someone who is getting paid significantly more money than you are, and they get to deal with that. <laughs> um, when you are when you are in charge, when it's your project, so much of it is taking a deep breath, remembering that you're all in this together. Even if you're not, you have to tell yourself that you are, um, and deciding, like responding pleasantly and professionally in the moment. And some people are very, very good at taking that moment and being like, wait, I'm so sorry. I think you're saying this. Can you just clarify? Because I think on page three, we set that up, but I can make that clear if you want to. And some people just need to smile and nod and say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. And then in the next notes call, uh, or like after they've done the rewrite, like talk about what they took and what they didn't and why. And so a lot of it's just knowing which kind of person you are um, and like knowing when you can get away with pushing, when you can't get away with pushing, when something's worth pushing, when something's not worth pushing. And that's just a thing you learn through experience. Yeah, I think that with notes, it's also like you have to, I have like a process when I first get notes and I've had this on shows too with my showrunners, we get notes. We're like, thank you so much for these notes. And then it's like, these are the worst notes ever. Everyone needs to be fired. <laughs> like no one knows what they're doing. And we're not taking a single one of these. And then it's like, you know, a minute goes by and it's like, well, I guess we should think about these notes. And then we think about them. And then the next day it's like, I don't want to take the note, but if we had to, maybe we can do this. Mm -hmm. And then we get excited. And then we rewrite that. And then like at the end of the day, we're like, all right, maybe it was an okay note. You know, like it's just like a process. Not to say sometimes it really is bad notes, but just like sitting with it and allowing yourself to go through the stages of notes and be like, I'm gonna feel each one of these. Yep. Um, because immediate I'm always like, no, thank you. I don't know why I'm so quickly. And then I'm like, oh, that was really thank you for those notes that were really helpful. Yeah. And well, you're getting the note for a reason. 
sometimes the reason will be because the person is dumb, but more frequently, <laughs> it's, it's more frequently it is because they are not feeling the thing you want them to feel. Mm-hmm. And so you have to go back and figure out, okay, they're not feeling the thing. How do I make them feel the things that they need to feel? Because that's really what it is 90% of the time. And how have your approaches to being in the writer's room changed as you've kind of moved up levels from staff writer to, to kind of higher um, levels? You know, do you do anything differently that you, you do now that you wouldn't have done when you were um, a lower level writer or you know, what's kind of changed? Well, I do. I mean, I just got through with this room for this show called Ticker that I'm EPing on. And it's, it's funny you go through all these rooms that you've been on, you know, or, you know, sometimes even for films, you get to be in these little, you know, rooms. <clears throat> and um, I learned something from everybody. You know, that's, I'm just like somebody who soaks up game like that. And so I take a piece of a bunch of different people and I have a really um, calm demeanor when I'm in the room. So any fires that come on, I'm never the guy who goes, what the fuck? I'm always like, hmm, let me think about that for a second. You know? And I go, okay, got it, you know? And so I, I've learned that I've watched on certain shows I've been on where the showrunners or even sometimes the co-EPs are pacing or throwing a piece of paper or whatever the hell they do. And I'm just like, I don't want to do that. I, I always come from that commercial of never let them see you sweat, you know? <clears throat> so I want to try to be the most calmest person in the room if I can, you know? Because if I fuck up and I'm the guy who's getting all upset or the girl who's getting all upset, how is your staff writer going to follow that? You know, and you don't want people to get those bad, you know, um, learn those bad lessons from you. So I just try to keep as cool as possible because I've seen people not be cool. You know what I mean? I think that's also especially true for um, lower level writers, especially staff writers. Like, I think, you know, going back to the whole idea of like taking your ego out of the equation. like if your showrunner's having a really bad day and getting lots of like, you know, notes from the studio and none of the notes make sense and they're like having a meltdown, you want to be like as cool and calm as possible because you're there to like help them in any way, shape or form. Like whether that's like letting them bitch about it for as much as possible, like as a room or like coming up with solutions, like whatever it is, you're there to support them. So it's like, you can't really bring in your own, you know, shit into the equation. Like whether it's like, whether or not your script was rewritten or whatever it is, I think it's like, you know, you're just there to support them. That's where you got to get a good uh, therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We are going to take a short break of a couple of minutes. We'll be back around five with uh, another topic. Uh, If uh, our guests hopefully will stick around. If not, we thank them for their time and joining us for the 200th episode live stream of People Team. We are back for the final part of our 200th paper team live stream. We are in the end game now, as they would say. And uh, and Nick, do you want to introduce our next guest who's uh, joining us? Yeah, we are going to be joined by Logan Creedy, who is a producer and development executive uh, who was on the podcast many moons ago. Welcome, Logan. <laughs> Hi there. Can can you all hear me? First off, yes. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic that I made technology work, which is uh, always a surprising thing. It's trickier than expected. That's always sure. a challenge. Yeah. 
Yes. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, welcome uh, to uh, this uh, final part of uh, the live stream. And uh, in this part's topic, in uh, our second episode ever of Paper Team, the first episode was about moving to LA, which we talked about at the top of this live stream. But the second episode was about the necessity at the time of declaring a major, essentially, whether you were one hour or a half hour, especially if you're starting out, it's important to uh, brand yourself as one or the other. But obviously, over the past four and a half years, uh, the emergence of uh, ambiguous formats like half hours akin to Fleabag, Barry, and so forth uh, have uh, changed the game. So I'm really curious to hear everyone's thoughts, and we can start with you, Logan, on the evolution of uh, television, the craft, the format of uh, dramedies and so forth. And if uh, in 2020, you feel there's such a necessity as saying, hey, I'm a comedy writer or hey, I'm a drama writer. You know, it, it's funny you say that because uh, we're actually at a moment right now where literally two weeks ago, we went into our studio and we pitched a project that we had conceived of as an hour long. And they came back to us and said, but what if it was a half hour? Uh, not not trying to like make it, you know, oh, what if it's a broadcast sitcom now, but more along the lines of like, can you do it in a half hour format, right? Can you do it in that compressed sort of, you know, thriller, drama, homecoming, uh, you know, sort of pioneering way uh, that we've done before. And really to answer your question, you know, I would say at the end of the day, like it's sort of context dependent, right? I think that the, the way you're sort of pitching yourself as a writer is going to be different whether you're trying to work, um, you know, with a producer or a studio in development or whether you're meeting with a network for staffing purposes, right? I think, you know, if you are trying to get staffed, I think there's a lot of value in being able to say, yes, I am a genre writer. I am a comedy writer, right? I am that person who you should think about when you're staffing up your next room that fits in these spaces. Um, at the same time, for something that you're trying to do yourself, right? If you're, if you're going under development and you're trying to meet a producer, just like, you know, get to know them and see sort of where your interests lie, you know, be as broad in that sense as possible. I mean, not as in like pretend to love everything, but if you're connecting with the person you're meeting on musicals at the same time that you're connecting about horror, that's not a bad thing, right? Maybe together you can pick up with a musical horror, right? Like Anna and the apocalypse, right? Like there are, there are definitely those opportunities. And so I would just say kind of look at the context of where you're, uh, where you're trying to brand yourself more than anything else. And Caroline, I know you've in particular worked across a number of different formats. How have you found that experience and how has that affected your, you know, how do you pitch yourself or brand yourself when you're going for jobs or putting yourself out there? Yeah. So I've worked on um, One Day at a Time, which was a half hour dramedy. And then I've worked on The Bold Type, which was a one hour dramedy. <laughs> so I've sort of lived in the middle space a lot. Um, I still brand myself as a comedy writer. I think that that's where my instincts go. I also think that... Um, Sometimes when I meet with people who are just starting out and they say, I love everything and I can write drama and comedy, I feel a little bit like, I don't know how to help you because I don't know exactly where, like who you would want to meet, what kind of shows you would want to be on. So just in terms of that, I think it's easier to still have a com comedy, comedy or a drama sort of emphasis that you say that you fall into. But I might be alone in that because I know a lot of people are like, there's, it's so it's not separated anymore. It's like everything is there, but I do feel like it's easier for people to remember me for things that have comedy in it, whether it be an hour long or a half hour. If I still brand myself as saying I am a comedy writer, but I'll, I can do all types of comedies. Yeah. Well, off of that, I think it's important. It's important to know who you are 
and why you're saying I like all kinds of things. Because if you are a person who wants, deliberately wants to like break boundaries and bend genres and wants to do a like historical horror comedy, awesome. There, there is a very clear reason for you to say, I love history and I love horror and I love comedy and I want to do this thing. If you're just thirsty, um, <laughs> which I am not hating on, we have all been there. But if you're just doing it from a portion of, I'll take a job, I'll take any job, I'm good at everything, please, please hire me, people see that. Um, and also you're doing yourself a disservice because if someone does take you at your word, you are likely to get into a situation that like is not your thing. So just, uh, and then you won't do well. So just know what your thing is. And your thing may be a weird, broad range of genre bending things that has never been seen before, which is fucking awesome because we're living in a time where that's great. But just if you're trying to live in the middle space, I think make sure that you're doing it because you're like Carolyn and that's a, a place in which you excel rather than because you're just like, well, if I say that I'm in the middle, then I'll get a job somewhere. Right. It's like that intentional decision of saying, hey, I'm blending genres and blending <laughs> formats, but I'm still an individual as a writer. I've got this specific backstory. I've got this specific narrative that I can pitch myself uh, in the room. And this is why I'm amazing in that specific niche of blending formats as opposed to I can do everything. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I totally hear that. Even if you feel like you can do everything, the people you're going to be meeting with, whether it's executives, a studio, or showrunners for a particular show, they're going to be looking for something specific. They're going to be the comedy executive for half hours, or they're going to be uh, showrunning a particular kind of show. And so you want to be able to show why you're right for that rather than just, oh, I can do whatever. Um, you know, I can do it all. No one's going to believe that. <laughs> they want to see that, you know, you have a niche and they're going to remember you more because when they need that specific kind of writer, they're going to know to go to you. I think people also like confuse their taste and what they like to watch with what they're actually good at writing. And that's where you get like the people who think they're good at everything. I think very few people are actually like good at everything. Right. <laughs> yeah. Evelyn, yeah. I think that is, I love dramas and I love crime, true crime stuff. I love watching that. If I wrote it, I would, there would be a joke every second of like, look at all this blood. Where is this? Like, I would just, it would be insane. And yeah. I think that, that is so smart that people have to remember what you like to watch is not always what you're good at writing. Exactly. Like I love comedies, but I'm not a comedy writer. Like I'd be, I'd be really bad if I was on a, on a network comedy I feel like so I think it's like really important for people especially who are just starting out in their careers to like figure out what they're good at and right. that could be like, a bunch of genres but it's probably not like a broad comedy and then like a historical drama <laughs> unless we're well, great music maybe <laughs> portfolio for sure uh, it's a bit like the people who are like oh I'm, I'm funny I'm naturally funny as opposed to I can write comedy or I can generate jokes uh three a page uh, you got to be aware of your skills and uh, weaknesses as a writer. Uh, sorry, we just got a comment from uh, Ron70, uh, who says, although I'm not sure exactly what his question is, but uh, he asked, what should we be writing at the time for new voices? Uh, maybe he's asking, what is the best kind of thing to write in order to break in or in order to show uh, the voice that you have that is unique from all the other people? If anybody wants to take it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'd say your dream project. The thing that like you are dying to write that 
like if anyone else wrote it, you'd be crushed because you feel like you should be the person to write it. I think that's like, that's probably going to be a good sample. Yeah. And I, I would say too, going even, even deeper, right? Write what only you can write, mm -hmm. you know, in, in that sense, right? Don't please. And I'm, I'm speaking from my perspective as a development exec, right? Like dear, dear God, don't write a spec of an existing show. <laughs> Cause that will tell me, <laughs> that will tell me nothing, you know, about you necessarily, right? Other than the fact that maybe you can hew to an existing tone or a voice, but then I don't know about your voice, right? I don't, I don't know what, drives you or what you're interested in talking about or what you want to say, right? Like I don't have that sense. So write what uniquely you can write, whether it's some life experience you've had, whether it's a perspective on a particular situation or an emotional journey that you went through yourself or somebody close to you went through, right? Like write what uniquely you are able to talk about. Um, and of course, fictionalize it, right? Just because, you know, you're in high school doesn't mean you can only, um, you know, write about high school stories, for instance. But Definitely, you know, try as best you can to write something that is from your unique point of view, as opposed to something that can come from a more generic place. And I'd also jump in and say, write, write your wildest dream. When you're trying to break in, if you're doing a, if you're writing just a sample, you're not, you're probably not going to sell it and you shouldn't be worried about that shit. So don't worry about writing that something, something that can get made, write something that is cuckoo bananas balls to the wall just out there if that's the thing that you want to write if who you are is a very small family drama like closed sets person write that but don't i see a lot of times people are trend chasing and mm -hmm. a lot of times people are trying to write with an eye towards this is going to get sold like next month um, and it's going to be like magic and wild and I need to like worry about writing a producible script. No, you don't. Not if it's just a sample. Yeah. Like, just be crazy. I, I agree with Frankie a hundred percent. Try not to chase the party. And I, that's been a, a uh, sort of manifesto of mine for, for quite a while. Even when I saw bosses doing that when I was an assistant, um, I don't think it really ever works. I think if you try to do that, you're going to end up being behind the times. I think if all you try to do is chase the party, you know, we would never have something like I May Destroy You, for instance, right? That came from an extremely unique point of view um, and a place that was not just trying to capture what was already out there in the zeitgeist, right? Is everything everybody's saying, right? Right from your perspective, right? What you uniquely can talk about. Yeah, I would I would agree. And I also sometimes tell people to put, it doesn't have to be exactly you, but sometimes if the protagonist is a mirrored version of you, someone like you, and they have similar interests that you do, then it's for that first sample. Then when you have the meeting with people, they're like, oh, I'm sitting down with the girl from the script that I read, you know, and I have an idea of who you are a little bit. And um, I think that that helped me a lot in the beginning because they, would, I had a writing partner at the time and they would read our script and it was sort of about these two characters and then they would meet us and they're like, oh, here they are. I already, I already sort of know about you and I already know that I kind of like you because I've read this. And in terms of uh, your jobs and uh, generating you samples for the writers or even the samples that you read for Logan, uh, have you seen any changes in that evolution, uh, especially in the era where, like I mentioned before, we have a lot of dramedies or shows that kind of are in between? Um, do you actually uh, have you actually seen uh, an evolution in the actual samples that you read or even the ones that you want to write them moving forward? Was well, for me? Sorry. 
Sure. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I've I've seen yeah, I've seen a strong change in the scripts that I receive. Um, I I've seen everything from the half hour dramas to hell, even like eighty page pilot scripts that you know previously years ago might have been said. You know that's way too long. The manager don't even send it out, right? And by the way, I'm not in any way suggesting please don't write an 80 page pilot script. But th that unique, that particular one specifically, I'm thinking of was based on like this archaic work from like 1920s philosophy, and there was a very specific reason as to why it ended up being that length when you dove into what thematically it was talking about. I know it sounds crazy, but I do think there is some uh, there is some opportunity in kind of changing up those formats and writing, you know sort of where where you find your dreams or what you're looking for um within you know within some sort of uh, uh realism totally um and uh, what about the writers have you had a, a change of heart maybe in terms of okay my next sample it might not be a one hour or half hour or or i'm gonna go crazy and don't really worry about the format as much as the story and see what fits i'm like i'm i'm boring I'm like an hour long drama writer. It's who I am as a person. Um, so for me, it's been less about crazy format and uh, like thinking more about dramedy and a uh, half hour and switching sort of like format and genre and more about uh, subject matter um, and like things that I would have thought probably at the beginning of my career. Well, I can't do this because I need to like, turn around and focus on having a strong genre sample. So if, like one of those shows I can get staffed for, like I'm writing what I want instead of writing what I think I need to have to get the next job. Um, and that is, I don't, I can't tell you how that's going to work out for me professionally in the long term, um, but <laughs> making the writing of it easier because mm -hmm. I'm writing the things that I am passionate about instead of forcing myself to write a thing that I think other people will hire me for. If that makes I, sense. I actually want to pull out something you just said, Frankie, which I think is very smart, right? Don't just write a genre sample because you feel like you need it to get staffed on a genre show, right? I, I will tell you, for instance, there was one spec I read last year that I'm still absolutely obsessed with, and I will keep in the back of my mind until we can see it to the light of day, but it was so strong on character and so strong in voice, I would staff that woman in any room I'm working on because she knows character, right? I don't care if it's a genre show, a horror show, a straight up one hour drama. Like, I understand she will be able to break down a character and what's plaguing them on an internal level because of the strength of that script, right? So especially when you start thinking about people who are staffing rooms, they're going to need so many different perspectives. They're not just going to need people who are good at genre, but they'll need people who are good at character too. If it's a lighter genre show, they might need people who are good at comedy too, right? So if you're writing where your strengths are and the things that you care about, you're going to find your way into the right room. So don't try to mold yourself to fit those. And I'm curious to hear more, uh, Frankie, do you feel that shift is more because you're moving up in your career? Or do you feel like if you were to start now, you feel it would still be better to think of it less strategically as opposed to much more about the writing that you want to write now? I honestly don't know. And the reason I don't know is this, as like, there are executives and showrunners who think the way that Logan just said. And then there are also executives and agents and managers and showrunners who will not submit anyone for a piece unless their sample is a complete map onto whatever the show is and they're, and who won't read someone for something unless their sample is a complete map onto what the show is. They're just people whose 
imaginations don't like work in that particular way. So, and that's a thing that you do have to be cognizant of. Um, and so I think it's a matter of if you are the kind of person who can write in like a very specific, okay, I am a character writer, but also I really, really want to write a fantasy show. I really want a job on a fantasy show. And so I'm going to write my character-based fantasy spec or can fantasy pilot. And that's just what I'm going to do. Like that, there's value in that in the early stages because you don't know who the person you're is who's going to be giving you your kind of first like foot to step through the door is. For me, a lot of the change has just been time and attention span. Like it's just harder for me to make myself write something just because I am supposed to be writing it. Um, I got a, a job. I teach part-time I have various and assorted other things going on I just no longer have the attention span to write things that I'm not madly in love with um maybe I should just get some fucking Ritalin and deal with it um but so I honestly like it's a per it's a it's a thing that you have to decide for yourself um whether the kind of effort that you're going to be going through to write something that you're not completely in love with, but you think is going to be the sample that gets you this job is an effective and good use of your time or not. And that's the thing only you can answer. Have any of you ever found yourself in a position where you were kind of being pushed towards writing something you didn't really want to write because you thought that, you know, maybe it was an agent or manager who thought that you needed this for some reason or a producer who wanted a particular kind of thing. And how did you resolve that situation? Um, I had a I had a meeting recently for a project that was um I, it was supposed to be like um I was supposed to adapt something for and work with a director on it and I knew right off the bat that it really wasn't for me um so I basically I mean I talked to my reps about it I think it's always good to just be really clear on what you will and won't do um because if you can't talk to your team about that then you know you're kind of like you're lost. I feel like, um, you know, I think especially like as a, as a, as a younger writer or as a, as a beginning writer, it's easy for people to kind of just like take whatever they can get. And I definitely understand that. Um, but I think if you know, right off the bat that it's just not something that you're going to do a good job in, then you're kind of setting yourself up for failure by trying to take it. Yeah. And being honest about that, yeah. like with your team, just saying like, I, yes, there is a world in which I do this. I can tell you right now, it won't be good. And my time is better spent doing something else. Like that's, it, it takes, you know, a lot of confidence in yourself to be able to say that. And it's terrifying to say it the first time, but being able to say that will take you further in your relationship with your reps and also in your relationship with your own writing. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had um, my reps push me to write anything that I don't want to write, but I have had them to push me to take jobs that I didn't want to take. Um, and that was a real lesson in just having the confidence to say, well, saying no to a job is just terrifying because you're like, they're never, this is the last one. This is going to be the last one. And then I said no, and it's never going to come again. It, they will come again. Um, but just getting in, being able to say, I don't want to go on this show because then I'm going to be on this other track that I don't want to be on in a different genre or whatever it is. Um, and that was a real lesson of just 
being super honest with your reps. And of course your agents want you to take a job. They want you off their call sheet. You know, they want you just to be working and so they don't have to think about you. Um, and you have to be the one to say, this isn't right for my career. This isn't right for me. I don't think I would crush that job. I wouldn't do a very good job at it. They would, you know, be disappointed in me. So, um, yeah, that was how I handled that was just staying true to myself. Definitely. Uh, one question that we like to ask writers all the time or producers or anybody who comes on the podcast is, um, do you have any final advice for TV writers, whether they are working, whether they're aspiring? Um, what's something that you found really useful in your career? I mean, I just want to underline what Frankie said earlier, which is about like writing your your you know your dream project the thing that you're most passionate about i think that's the thing that will get you the furthest like whether or not it sells or not it's it's going to be the best reflection of who you are as a writer um i'll say have a thing that is outside this industry that you love um and be that relationships with friends who don't work in the industry be that a partner who doesn't work in the industry be that a, a pet that you are completely obsessed with be that a hobby uh, um, I, in pre-Rona times, would go to the opera and theater and dance shows all of the time because those are things that I don't do for a living. Um, so I can go to an opera and not have my writing brain turned on. Um, just have something in your life that is not this industry because it can become all-consuming. And this industry kicks your ass. And so having a place to escape is just so incredibly important to your mental health. And also to remind you that we're not curing cancer. It is not the end of the world if you are bad at a job. It is not the end of the world if you don't get a job. You are still a worthwhile human being if whatever is going on in your writing life is not you know, going great. And so just having something like that is, for me at least, just vital. Logan, do you have any thoughts? I would say, um, you know, aside from just your own writing, um, I would say try to read as many screenplays as you can, um, not just features, TV, shorts, anything that's sort of like written down. And you could extend that same sort of idea towards just watching things that have come before. I can't tell you how many times, like I'm developing a, a rom-com on Netflix right now, and I can't tell you how many times I have in the last two weeks even watched those classic 90s, <laughs> early 2000s rom-coms, like, you know, Made in Manhattan, Notting Hill, right? <laughs> Just to see what have they done, right? I mean, I think we all in some way stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And I think there's no crime in looking back to see how have successful things pulled off you know, character journeys, set pieces, figuring out how those pieces fit together and seeing how you can apply it to your own writing. I think you can only get stronger by looking back at what's come before us and being able to pick up on the cues of, of how something was written down, how something was crafted, how a journey was put together. So, you know, yes, writing, obviously your own work is absolutely incredible and, and crucial, but and there's a lot of value in going back and, and reading and sort of educating yourself and that side of things. Excellent. Oh, oh sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I, I I don't know where people are in, in their career, but if they're just starting out and they're like, I want to be a writer, I say just get a job in Hollywood, no matter what it is. If it's an assistant, I worked as an assistant for years and I learned so much. And when I came out of college, I thought it was like, you could be a writer, a producer or a director. And then I got on set and I was like, whoa, there's so many jobs here. And it is, there, it was just like a it was like college again for TV. And then those connections that I made, those mentors are the reason why I ended up writing. So um, just get a job, get in the industry, get your hands dirty, and you will learn so much. 
Excellent. Well, I think this is a, as good as a place as any to start wrapping up this uh, huge live stream event that we did. Uh, first of all, we want to thank all of our amazing guests for joining us to celebrate this amazing milestone. So thank you all. And thank you, uh, Carolyn, Frankie, Evelyn, Logan, for sticking out until the yeah, bitter thank end. You guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Congrats having on us, 200 Carol. episodes. This is... Yeah. It's quite the accomplishment. Yeah, for real. <laughs> that is so much... I should sit down and listen episode one to 200 <laughs> and then call you when I'm done and be like, it's 10 years later. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to know now when your syndication rights are going to go up for sale. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk. We'll have our people call your people. <laughs> All right. Uh, we also want to thank, of course, our audience for sticking it with us for 200 episodes and at this point, three and a half hours of uh, live stream. Uh, we want to also highlight a message that we received, and uh, this will be slightly self-serving, but you know, if there's any good episodes to do this, it would be this one. Um, we asked our audience, you know, in what ways has Paper Team helped you on your own TV writing journey? And our longtime listener Varda said. You've been there for me in so many ways, whether it was when I was having a hard time with a story and you coincidentally addressed that exact issue on an episode where I needed to hear some encouragement and your guest said something really profound. Most importantly, your podcast makes me feel connected to other writers. We are a community of people going through the same challenges and having the same dreams. I also love listening to you because your voices are very calming. Have you ever considered starting a companion podcast or paper team called a Zen team <laughs> for TV writers? Uh, I'm sure you'll come up with a better name. Anyway, happy 200th anniversary. Keep them coming. Well, honestly, thank you, Varda, for this amazing message. And thank you to all of our listeners for sticking with us for 200 episodes. Yeah, it's, we couldn't do it without your support. So thank you so, so much. It's been great. All right. And on that note, uh, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode and our last 200 episodes, uh, please help us start the year on an amazing foot by supporting Paper Team at our Patreon page. That's paperteam.co slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, you'll get exclusive content, opportunities, uh, merch, and we can keep producing a great show like this for you every week. So as always, thank you to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 200. I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Uh, where can our listeners find you guys on social media if you want to be found? <laughs> I mean, I'm the I'm the easiest. I'm just at Logan Creedy on literally everything, but I don't tweet enough. I never on I'm interesting to follow. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> uh, I'm at Frankie the B. That's F R A N K I T H E B, just the letter B. Uh, if you want to read me rant mostly about podcasts, I'm not podcast politics, and mm -hmm. at this point, live tweeting deeply bad Christmas movies. That's <laughs> where you'll find me. <laughs> um, I'm at Evelyn Eves, and I tweet a lot about BTS. So just know what you're in for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Caroline Levitch, and on Instagram, you can see a lot of pictures of my dog. So. I'm going to follow Stay you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm following you. Right. <laughs> this is what Peter King is all about, dogs. Uh, all I right. Uh, and uh, if you have any questions, thoughts, opinions about this podcast, as always, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, well, I mean, uh, the uh, calendar is a bit uh, different uh, depending on if you're listening to this or streaming. But on Monday, December 21st is our second to last episode of the year as we look at the first draft of our second mentee, Ben Warner pilot uh and uh it should be a fun times in new orleans in the 
1800s. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, 200 episodes of fun and uh, awesome listeners and guests. Thank you. All.